Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Twin Geeks podcast, I'm Thinking of Spoiling Things. The podcast will be go through new movies, but wait! It's a special episode and this time we're going to take on television because the small screen is the big screen in a way. I don't know. We both watched a thing. We thought we'd talk about it. Content, content, content. As always, I am Stephen and with me is my good pal Vaughn. How you doing Vaughn? I'm doing well. Uh, welcome back, uh, Stephen. First off, I have to say, uh, from your honeymoon here, it is so great to have you wait, back. You're, wait, wait, you said you're from my honeymoon? No, I was welcoming you, welcoming oh, you back okay. from your so, honeymoon. Sorry, sorry, that, that was a mistake. From my, we'll, run, we'll, we'll run that bit for again. I, it was good, though. That was good. Like you, 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 bit of the knowledge there is working. Okay. How was, uh, how was, my, how was my intro? Was that good? Like, I, it was a bit... Should I get that down a bit more? I was away on honeymoon when the last episode of the podcast came out. Obviously, I wasn't on it. I knew this would be the case. It had happened before. It would happen again. But this episode, this one, was different. Three guests, three films. More ambitious than ever. Calvin had replaced me before. He was good. Very good. This time... He was a threat. The ambition was a threat. I sought solace in media due to being abroad. I had access to content from outside of my country. What a time to be alive. I found a show called The Rehearsal. I watched it. I learned that Vaughn had also watched it. Maybe we should cover it, but we don't do TV. We don't do TV, but we could. What a comeback, a new medium, a returning host, bold, ambitious, but it would need to be good. That last episode was good and I'd been away for a while. Vaughn kept going. Could I still do it? Do I still have it? Did I ever have it? I knew what I had to do. I had to do a rehearsal. I had to practice the podcast before doing the podcast. I had to get it right so that it went right. It had to be perfect, so I'd make it perfect. Vaughn wouldn't even know. But ambition? Well, what if I made the process part of the podcast, revealing it to Vaughn after and crafting the boldest episode yet? This was the way to do it. It would be difficult to pull off, though. I would need somebody who could play Vaughn could act out potential scenarios and rehearse every segment of the podcast with me. Somebody who knew him intimately, but would not reveal the secret. A difficult task. So I messaged his wife. What follows is a transcript of the original conversation between me and Vaughan's wife. For privacy and ethical reasons, I will be mentioning her name, Mol and I have secured professional actors to play the parts of myself and Vaughn's wife, Mol. I would do it, but I think I'd be bad, and there's almost never a time when Vaughn isn't here. He's usually away at night, and you'd be asleep. My plan was scuppered already. Would I have to fall back on a more conventional guest? Calvin? Jack? Murph? No, they were already too much of a threat. I could not include them in this project. Luckily, Vaughn's wife, Mol, offered me a solution. I actually think his cousin, Lucas, would be perfect. I could put you in touch with him. Let me call him in a couple hours when he's awake. 
You'll love Lucas. Love? That was an emotional complication I wasn't ready for, but I would maintain a professional distance. This is about the rehearsal, and to me, Lucas would only ever be Vaughn. So, I set up a new chat. Myself, Vaughn's wife, Mole, and Lucas. For privacy and ethical reasons, professional actors will continue to read the transcripts. Stephen, this is Vaughn's cousin Lucas. I replied. Hi, Vaughn's cousin Lucas. Thanks, Mole. Double face palm emoji. Send Vaughn on vacation so Lucas can move in. This was a joke, I think. I presumed. Or was it? In entering a secret conversation with Vaughn's wife, Mole, and his cousin, Lucas, I was at risk of jeopardizing existing relationships. In transforming Lucas into Vaughn, would Vaughn's wife, Mole, fall for Lucas? Or in researching Vaughn to help prepare Lucas, would Vaughn's wife, Mole, fall out of love with Vaughn? What if she wasn't ready for what she discovered? At this point, Lucas replied, interrupting my concerns and put him to bed for now. Hey, Stephen, let me know where I can send the invoice. I've already rehearsed this conversation we're about to have dozens of times, and it was expensive. A joke, maybe. Hopefully. It doesn't matter. He was in. This was going to work. Lucas, ever the professional, asked what's required of him. I presume you know, Vaughn, the things you will need to work out. Number one, how would he act in the intro? Number two, we start with new releases we've seen that haven't been covered in episodes and aren't getting a whole episode, so try and work out what you think he will talk about. Number three, his overall opinion on the rehearsal. I vote strike up a conversation with him and try and get some info you can parrot back. But be sly. Number four, we have an email segment. Vaughn has access to the emails and I do not. This last point was going to be a difficult one. We could predict Vaughn's actions in the podcast through preparation. Lucas would listen in to old episodes, reflect on his history of knowing Vaughn as his cousin and could take on his persona. I could do this, but how could he take on the persona of an unknown emailer asking unknown questions? And that part of the show could really sink it. Vaughn will have to read the emails I will not have done. He will have rehearsed. Surely, I should too. I had an idea. Unless Mole can access his computer and screenshot them, which is technically a real invasion of privacy. This certainly wasn't ethical. It also probably wasn't legal. But wouldn't it be more unethical to do a subpar rehearsal? and therefore have a subpar podcast. Yes, invading Vaughn's private life by employing his wife, Mole, as a spy is maybe a step too far, but the podcast listeners deserve a good episode and they outnumber Vaughn. Just the needs of the many this time would outweigh the needs of the few or the individual. It had to be done. And Vaughn's wife, Mole, agreed. I can do it. He always leaves it on. Brilliant. I returned to briefing Lucas. Finally, he will recommend a film he's watched recently at the end. Find a recent high star rating. Remember, it's a rehearsal so we can do several. Everything was in place. The last thing to perfect was the rehearsal itself. This would be an audio podcast, but the recording process needed to be right. It needed to be convincing. 
so they could truly rehearse for the actual episodes. Luckily, Lucas was already asking the right questions. What type of area does Vaughn normally record in? In his office. He always has a poser record displayed and some pretty generic film bro posters. Are there any British people I can live with for a week? It was going well, but we needed to get the precise details down. We needed to get Vaughn's wife, Mole, into the room. We needed a full description. I've been wanting to get into Vaughn's office to take pics or video, but he literally never leaves. This man honestly sits at his desk and watches movies all day. Lucas, if you want to get into the mind of Vaughn, all you need to know is in his office. The rest of our apartment is me. At this point, I started to worry. Was I drawing Vaughn's wife, Mole's attention to things she hadn't considered before? Would this exploration of Vaughn, of his innermost being, would this create resentment? Was I being a homewrecker? I decided to disrupt this flow of thought by giving a practical suggestion of how Vaughn's wife, Mole, could get inside the room. Bake a fire. I'm going to hint that he smells and he will have to take a shower. Her idea was better. And it worked. He's showering now. I'm going in. Oh, besties. I found the emails. He gained access to the room, followed by the cat, and filmed his surroundings, giving a clear overview for Lucas. The discovery of the emails was a real victory. But again, I started to be concerned about what I'd wrought as Vaughn's wife, Mole, started to reflect on what this room said about her current husband. So much to unpack. Really looking at his desk got me thinking, who is Vaughn? A tape measure on a coaster? Chopsticks, just in case? Vape next to a Polaroid of Paddington. I hope you could figure it out, Lucas because I can't. Swiss army knife next to hand cream. She had stumbled onto uncomfortable truths, but one stuck out more than others. Could Lucas figure out Vaughn? This wasn't going to be enough. We had to get him in the house. We're going to a concert Thursday, if you want to come over and make yourself at home. A break-in? Technically illegal but certainly necessary. A priori information wasn't enough. We needed a posteriori experience as much as I needed to deploy Latin terms to establish a false sense of intellectual security for the podcast listener. I can leave a key. Perfect. We could get Lucas into the space and he'd get a feeling for what it is like to be Vaughn. But he also had to look like Vaughn. Family resemblance is something, but Vaughn had very distinctive hair pink hair to be exact lucas ever the professional was having the same thought i hope one of you can source me a wig with colored hair i can find you one me and vaughn share an amazon account so i'll have to look on my work laptop vaughn's wife mole soon found the disturbing looking but appropriate wig i'm gonna buy it and dye it when he's out at a movie on Tuesday, then I could hide it here. And Lucas, you could find it on Thursday. This is perfect. Thank you, Molly, my dear and beloved wife. This was a troubling moment, but Lucas quickly revealed he was already practicing his character. How's that sound? Is that something Vaughn would say? No. Laughing emoji. Vaughn has only said mole to me. 
I am Maul or Bean. He's never said Bean on the podcast. This was an important breakthrough, but it wasn't the only one. Ooh, I also got my friend to order the wig and die. She'll bring it to me Monday. At this point, Vaughn's wife, Moll, illegally sent us a screenshot of a private conversation with her friend. She had sent an Amazon link and the following messages. It's easier if you don't ask questions. Fastest shipping. While we waited for the wig, I focused on helping Lucas get into character. Vaughn will mention Kiristami because this is docufiction. Certified copy will certainly come up also. Oh, I'm sure. How about Synecdoche's New York? Has he seen that? Let me see. I checked. He has not seen Synecdoche, New York. Forget everything you know about Synecdoche, New York. Another film that may come up was Symbiopsychotaxoplasm Take One, a film Vaughn had not only seen, but has rated a 5 out of 5 on letterbox.com. Unfortunately, at this point, we ran into an issue. My friend says the wig has been delivered, but it might have been stolen. America. We will see if it magically turns up today, but if it doesn't, Lucas, you might have to go to Party City or something and find one. Maybe there are spirit Halloweens popping up. A backup plan. Wig is found. Crisis averted. Vaughn is seeing a movie tomorrow night, so I'll diet while he's out. This was going well. Too well. Oh no. Oh no. Vaughn might not go to the movie. Vaughn did not go to the movie. This left us with a useless blonde wig. Luckily, Vaughn's wife, Mole, is resourceful and was willing to do more espionage work, continue to turn her married life into a lie. I have a plan. I'm going to boil water in secret and dye this wig in the bathroom while he's busy. I hope I don't make a mess. A picture was sent a while later of a successful dyeing operation. So far, so good. How long have you been hiding in the bathroom for this? I told him I was going to take a bath. The dying was a success, and Vaughn never noticed. Oh, wow, that looks fantastic. I can't believe I got away with this. You're doing great, Maul. Was that Lucas speaking? Or Vaughn speaking? Does it even matter anymore? Have we already gone too far? There might be minor staining, but honestly, he will gaslight himself into thinking it was his own fault. We had certainly already gone too far. I've listened to about three hours of the podcast since this. I will practice in front of a mirror. You should steal some of his clothes when you come by tomorrow. Far too far. We are leaving for a concert right now. Address redacted. Treats on the table for Ripley. Ripley is the cat. Awesome, thanks. Keep me updated. This was going to happen. A necessary step to make the rehearsal work, but potentially a flirtation with immorality. But doesn't art override morality? Isn't the recording of a successful podcast about a TV show more important than the implications of getting somebody to break into their cousin's house, steal their clothes, and attempt to steal their identity? I think so. Preaching successful, Ripley... Ripley is the cat. Ripley appeared hostile, but with the wig on, has now accepted me as Vaughn. An important first step, but not far enough. With the wig on and having gained Ripley's acceptance. Ripley is the cat. 
I was already feeling more in tune with Vaughn's experience and personal life, but I had to go deeper. Dramatic pause. I put on a Hawaiian shirt, the wig, and am now perusing Alien the Archive while listening to Pat Labor 2 soundtrack on vinyl. Picture was supplied. It was glorious. The breach was a success. Lucas was Vaughn now. I left a few minutes ago, feeling good, feeling Vaughn. I took notes down in a little notebook. Okay, nice. Did you leave the wig or take it? I took the wig. Need to be able to feel like this again. And the shirt? Haha. <laughs> I didn't take the shirt. Hopefully, he could simulate that feeling at home. I agree, it would have been wrong to steal the shirt. But wouldn't it also be wrong to damage the legitimacy of the rehearsal process? Only time would tell. Oh, yeah, I think we can get it down a little bit. Um, okay, so I noticed on uh, on the last one, yeah. Vaughn was getting a, a little a little weird with it. And he, mm. I think he's like, okay, this is like our paradigm shifting podcast yeah we, you know, yeah so like, just like adjective like load at the beginning yeah yeah, that's yeah. The expectation. so I, I was thinking maybe something like uh um okay but i have a spitball one yeah yeah, like, yeah yeah that's fine yeah. welcome We're back all to like welcome back to uh the twin geeks podcast um sorry no, 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 uh, just, just, that's a different podcast that would that would be yes, good though. Know, like, that would be like yeah and then just calvin appears that'd be great um <laughs> yeah okay okay so i was thinking like uh Welcome back to, yeah. I'm thinking of spoiling things mm -hmm. in an episode where we are even further disconnected from reality than usual. Oh, um, yeah, that, that, that's bold. Like, that, that, I don't that's know brave. That is... is that me, though? I like, I don't know. I feel like this. Mm, we'll, we'll try it. I like it. I like it. We'll go. Okay. That's true. I mean, that, that was Vaughn that was, that was saying that. You're right. Um, you're right. I just, because normally, like, I feel like, I don't, I don't know if appeal is too strong a word. I feel it's more like aesthetic, mm. I guess. But I feel like what I bring Ooh, yeah. to the podcast is like, barely like held together just like just shambling nonsense with occasional bursts of eloquency and like but i feel just like that kind of like haphazard approach to speaking is, is like an aesthetic that i've got but then i don't know if that's listener friendly I, so i think yeah hit the intro right hit the intro right mm. yeah okay um, okay well question then yeah. Do yeah. you or Vaughn normally split the intros? Well, this is really or... weird. So the, the thing, the, the strange thing about our show is nominally I am the host because I introduced mm. the show. I don't know if you've noticed though, but then I, I then I just make Vaughn do everything else. It's really strange. Like so, I just like take over at the beginning, and then like he edits it, he produces it, he introduces oh, segments, he does the emails. So it's like it's it's a very strange hosting job because I'm nominally in charge because I just say hello, um, and then it's very much his show. Um, but I think just out of like insecurity of myself, I feel the need to like just grab it at the beginning because otherwise it's the Vaughn oh, show. Totally. And we've already had two Vaughn shows and I feel like I need to get back. I don't have enough podcasts anymore. So it's just trying to rest control. Oh, I hear you. Nope. Yeah, totally yeah, yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So taking just, the reins back right at yeah, the start. Exactly. So this intro usually be like, oh, welcome to a grab bag of things and stuff. And like, I'm mm. like, oh, what's Steven saying? It's like quirky. But this time, bam, efficiency. Okay. I like it. I yeah, like thank it. You. Thank um, you. And then just to reiterate, uh, I do, I mean, I'd imagine that at the start of the episode here, Vaughn would be welcoming you back. Yeah, I think that makes pod, sense. Yeah, I think it's like, like, welcome back to the pod and welcome back to the country. And like, oh, mm. you know, I think a reference to what happened when I was away, ask me if I listened, I'd be like, no, <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, where did you go on your honeymoon? Well, Vaughn knows that. 
Well, oh shit. See, that's where I'm running into the problem, Steve. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's 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 the problem. I, so yeah, mm. I, I, I mean, he said in the last episode, and he he said like going to like the Fellini's recording because I did I did actually listen to a bit of the last episode. Um, a little bit. I listened to the very beginning to see if I was mentioned because I am deeply insecure. <laughs> and then I listened to the middle section about Prey because I had seen the movie. And now I've seen The Land Goodbye and I listened to the last bit. I have not seen Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. They've not released that over in Old England. So I, oh, I cannot shit. See, not see that yet. I hear it's good. Um, I've heard good things too. I yeah. haven't. I mean, you wrote a great review yet. about it. You wrote a really good review. It's very true. <laughs> yeah. You wrote a podcast about it. You did a great job. Bodies, bodies, bodies. One of my favorite strap lines of yours. And then there'll be neon. That was great. That was just really good, really good wordplay. Um, yeah, so I I was, it was 20 days, 10 locations. Let's see if I can name them. Um, well, we started in Paris um, mm. to get on the train. Um, Strasbourg, Basel, Zurich. Um, God, I sound so bougie now. I'm like, can I remember my European destinations? <laughs> um, so then from Zurich to Milan, day trip oh, to man. Venice, um, then from back to Milan again, then from Milan to Monterosso Almer, which I know that Vaughan, you've been to. You told me you've been to that. Mm, I saw the picture. Of course. Um, then from Monterosso Almer, um, we went via Pisa to see that funny tower, that funny tower, yes. very funny tower, ridiculous. Um, over to Florence, um, Florence, oh, absolutely incredible. From Florence over to Rome, quick stop in the country that is Vatican City, different country, mm. wild place, kind of dull. Absolutely. And then Rome and then back. So there you go. That's the background you need to know. That is good. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Um, a lot of those places I have been. Uh, Specifically oh, getting yes, getting um getting trapped in uh in Pisa with uh with my cousin's family. By the tower. Um by the tower, yeah. Oh, the, all those roundabouts around there, absolute hell. Not a fan. You see, I'm used to roundabouts. You see, in this in the in old England, we have roundabouts. We had some some American friends over for the wedding, and every time I was driving around, we got to roundabout and they're just like, What is going on? Um, yeah, oh, just absolutely, absolutely great. So, all right, in my yeah. notes here for the podcast, I'm gonna write Please. Hit the intro tight. Tight. I love it. And I'm going to write down paradigm shift. I liked that. Paradigm shift. Hit the intro. These notes are not going to make sense when I come to do the thing, but... Doesn't okay, happen. We'll see. Okay, so three, two, one. Hello, and welcome back to the latest episode of the... Oh, that is the... I was going to say the paradigm shifting podcast, and that mm. makes it sound like we're a podcast about paradigm shifting. That's true. I think, hmm, I think maybe if I go more like lean into like friendliness, like welcome back for it. Should I call the listeners a friend? Is that nice? I think you can. Yeah. yeah. I'd hope there are friends. By yeah, I think there are friends. Yeah. Hey, I've been to put, what if, you, what if you're this, what if, in the wild situation that this is your first listen and some random British guy's like, hey, friend, and you're like, who are you? Get out of my ears. How about friends and listeners? <laughs> <laughs> if you're listening, you're not a friend. No, no, no. There's very separate. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. 
Hello, friends and listeners, and those that cross the Venn diagram between. Welcome back to the Paradigm Shifting Podcast, where we cover all the new media. That's right, movies, television, the medias, the heavy two medias, the small screen, the big screen, the projected screen, the cathode ray tube. Yes, usually we do movies, motion pictures, feature films, occasionally documentary. We've not done documentary yet, but we're open to documentary. Well, more on that later, I guess. For today, we are shifting to the televisual as we are covering a show called The Rehearsal. And here to help me unpick the mysteries of The Rehearsal, I'm Stephen, by the way, we have Vaughan. Hi, Vaughan, how you doing? I'm doing well, thank you, Stephen. And first off, I do want to welcome Stephen back from his globetrotting honeymoon. Uh, it was difficult to take over for a few weeks the mm. role of host. Um, but now, you did really well. You did really well. You did really well. Well, thank you. It was fairly exhausting, but now mm. all of that work is off of my plate and back onto yours. Back so onto I'm mine. very glad to have you back. Yeah, and, and, and I, I listened to a bit of the episode because, um, I mean, I haven't watched Bodies, Bodies, Bodies yet because that's not out in um, good old Merry England. Um, and I listened to the Prey section because I watched Prey, um, which I don't know. I mean, you, you really liked Prey, really liked Prey. I did. I thought that the action was really well staged. I loved how this went really back to the original and just kind of stripping away a lot of the excess uh, plot and characters and a lot of the humans that didn't matter. It got yeah. back to cool aliens, cool scenery, and some great fights. I mean, I, I do agree with you. I mean, I don't know if I think the, the fights are quite as cool as you do, um, though there are some that are strong. Um, and the ending, I don't know, is a little bit weak. I think you talked about that. I, I do, I think the right way to go for the franchise is the stripping things back. I like that. I do like that it is, is more focused. I just think that the the new location they've chosen, the new time setting is just so promising and so fertile for more that it does give this opportunity. I feel if you're going to strip it back, strip it back in a less novel setting because it feels, I mean, tokenistic is too strong um, because I think they do a really good job of, of casting around that. And it's a shame that um, the the language dub is an option as opposed to it being, um, you know, being in, well, what language was it? Jesus Christ, I need to remember Comanche. that. Comanche, yeah. there you go, Comanche. Because yes. I'll, sound, I'll sound potentially racist if I get that wrong. <laughs> so I need to make sure, I'm gonna write down in my notes, don't be a racist. Well, across the pond, you're a little less familiar. So yeah, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> brilliant. And we are also, you know, we, we are but also those uh, notes, good words to live by. I like yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, we're about to elect a new fascist prime minister. So at the moment, racism hot over here, like real hot. Oh, yeah. Um, so I've been told. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We're really into it. I personally, not a huge fan. Um, obviously, mm. as a white person, it has in many ways helped me systemically because of white supremacy. Um, but I'm not okay with that. Um, but, you know, it's happened. I must recognize that. But I'm going to try, mm. try to not be racist and to be anti-racist. Um, so yeah, pray I quite like that pray discussion because I, I, I feel like you know you covered the movie and like I wanted to get my bit in there. I quite like that. Um, I'll go back to what I was saying. Um, so yeah, the, the, the Comanche, the Comanche dub. I watched the Comanche dub um, because I thought it'd be interesting too. Um, it's a shame, obviously, like to watch something. But you know, you and I have watched some like weird, like Italian, like seventies movies that like watching a dub sometimes just feels very, very natural. I don't. It works there. Um, Watching a dub is always awkward. I know that our good friend Matt was just like, why would you watch that? And I get that. I just feel that one of the key appeals of the film is the kind of like 
the juxtaposition between the high technology sci-fi of the Predator and the the very specific setting. And the more verisimilitude there is of that setting, the more that juxtaposition works. So seeing them actually speak, and so much of it is about language. I was reading that the kind of like the dialect of French that the trappers speak is like a, a now like either extinct or like nearly extinct or just archaic form of French. There's like there's different like levels of language and it makes more sense when the language is more accurate. It's, it's, it's a real shame they couldn't just like put it out um, as actual Comanche language. I understand why, doesn't mean it doesn't suck. Absolutely, yeah. I do think that the focus on uh, place language mm. and identity uh, in Prey is really one of its stronger kind of uh, features and parts of the movie. Yeah. I think it really sets it apart uh, from certainly a lot of action films that really yeah. just uh, a lot of widely released films in general with its uh, much larger focus on authenticity. I, I, I agree. And again, it, for me, it just goes back to, I feel that stripping down, yay, but it becomes missed opportunity um, because like the world is so interesting. It just, I don't know, it, it siphons itself off too cleanly. So that, that's prey. I watched that whilst away. I watched that. Where was I when I watched that? You know, when I was, I watched that in um, Zurich. Zurich was the place oh, where I watched oh. prey. There you go. Zurich, the place for prey. Um, a lovely, <laughs> lovely city, have to say. Um, so I also watched just last night, The Lad Goodbye. Okay, breaking character for a sec. I have not seen that one yet. <laughs> no, no, but you just, okay, well, so, all right. So I have not seen like a buy. Um, it's just, um, So I, I did see Vaughn's review for it. Okay, cool. Do you want to just like um, quote little bits of it at me and I'll just react to it? Yes, 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 yeah. yes. Um, let me let me bring that up on, yeah, cool. uh, on my phone here because um, it looked really interesting. I've got to say it's... It's totally on my watch list. It looks it's, like it's, a lot of fun. It's on Vimeo, just watch it. It's absolutely fantastic. There will be, by the time this podcast is up, there may be a review of it on the site from me. It's a really fantastic film. One of my favorite mm. films of the year, definitely, in my top five. Um, nice. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely rules. See, I, I watched so, the, the Land Goodbye, which I had not, I wasn't even familiar with um, until I think Cormac, our friend, friend of the show, came across it first. Then got Jack mm. involved. Jack got you involved. You watched it, maybe together, I forget. And then you get Jack on the podcast to talk um, The Lad Goodbye, which is wonderful, isn't it? What a great movie. It really is such a just kind of refreshing film. Mm. Very loose, very freewheeling. Yeah. Um, a lot of fun. Really enjoyed yeah. it. Totally fun. I think like I don't we don't go too much into it because you spoke at length about it last time. Um, but like I just really like it. It starts off very much overtly as like kind of like pastiche picture of being like, you know, the filmic references are there, there's like rooms surrounded by movie posters, you get what's going on. I feel the performance at the beginning of our lead is very much riffing on like early Jack Nicholson. You've got like the five easy pieces, I think, posted in the background. Um, it may be a different movie, but it's definitely a, a Jack Nicholson film. And then it kind of goes from there to being this much more like sensitive, kind of like lovely portrayal of like loneliness and friendship. And it's just, it's, I don't know, male friendship in, in film is still an underexplored area, I think, and is often kind of like either bromance, which is just kind of stupid, um, or it's just very, very macho, or is very just like, kind of like, mm, we're not that close to like preserve things. And I liked that here, there was that sense of just this guy just loved this other guy and they're just really good friends and that becomes the core of it about relationships. So lad goodbye, watching on Vimeo, it's absolutely fantastic. But um, seeing as this is the podcast, that's a bit of a recap from me. I think it's time to open our grab bag of recent releases. Yes. So first one that I want to throw in there is, bear with me as I yep. get the name up. Um, Yes, so 
recent review from me. Uh, yeah. Mm, recent watch from me. Uh, Interesting. Review is coming. Uh, is absolutely the 2007 uh, Joko Anwar. <laughs> my my favorite recent releases come from 2007. I have to say. Yeah. 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 Like like really really hot new film. It's relative, but as yeah. always, uh, this podcast is on the cutting edge of mm, media. Yeah, the cutting and, edge uh, of 2007. Yeah, I, that, I love uh, the orange box. I'm really enjoying it. John plays an Halo 3 in a bit. Like, this new cockroach has got a level up portal? system for its... Folks, mm, it, gotta it, get on it. God, they keep about cake. I just don't really trust them. I just don't think the cake's actual. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're living our 2007 dreams. Okay. Tell you what, I think there's a lot of lot of meme potential here. We can we can get on this, folks. Okay, fantastic. <laughs> um, so yes, you watched the recent release now. Um, Navon, I feel that this this I feel you should save that for the end of the podcast. <laughs> That's the recommendation at the end. <laughs> at this point, recent recent releases of what you've seen in the in the cinema recently since we recorded. I think this is oh, this is this, this 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 is bullet train time. I think this is bullet train time. I thought he already talked bullet train. I don't. Did he? When? Oh shoot! He might not have. Okay. 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 Yeah. Sorry. That's the recommendations. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 That, that Molly you know, was mentioned. It's a very complicated podcast and structure. It, it is. It Got is. a roll of it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, bullet train. Yeah. I can. I can talk bullet train. Yeah. So uh, I was. I was going to review this for the site, and then I was away when it came out, and I just couldn't be asked to go see it, and it just didn't look very good. Um. And I don't know. I'm not a huge fan of the director. Um. At all. Mm. Um. I actually. I don't even know if I saw because De- he only did Devil Two, didn't he? which I did not watch because yes. I did not like Deadpool 1. So I was not going to watch Deadpool 2. Um, so, you know, I did not watch Bullet Train. Should I watch Bullet Train? Well, that is a bit of a tricky question. I would mm. say that uh, especially going in with uh, a, you know, a knowledge of the director, um, I, I would say that what you're getting for on the box Mm, on the box yeah yeah, 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 is more or less what you're getting um i I, I love boxed films at the cinema (laughs) you go in they give you a box and it has a description (laughs) yeah got it got it got it i can engage with this yeah yeah um it is more or less what the trailer makes it look (laughs) like for both better and worse um it's got you know a very good ensemble it's mm. very much in the, uh, we'll say Guy Ritchie vein of very quick paced kind of vignettes that- uh, Okay, that are you a, are you a Guy Ritchie person? We've not, we've not really spoken about Guy Ritchie. Are you, are you into the Guy oh, Ritchie aesthetic? I suppose we haven't. Um, All right, let's try, Let's. Do, do you know? Let's break character. Do you know if he is or not? Uh, I think he's, uh, I know that he likes his earlier stuff. So Got all right, yeah. okay. So you love Bullet Train. This is this is this is our pitch. Uh, you did well. You you quite liked Bullet Train. You thought it was okay. You you're ambivalent on Guy Ritchie. You like certain mm-hmm. stuff. So so you're saying that this movie kind of reminds you of like Guy Ritchie. Um, what do you feel about Guy Ritchie? I don't know if we've spoken about this before. I don't know if we have. Um, I mean, of course, uh, his earlier movies uh, like Snatch, uh, Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels are uh, yeah. certainly have, have made a very large impact uh, on, on a very particular style of like film goer and movie watcher. Um, 
and a lot of that yeah i agree has... like definitely influential there's a, there's a bit of like yeah. british tarantino-y kind of like in the in the effect to have us talking to the younger demographic your 17 18 yes. year olds that are burgeoning film bros in a non-pejorative way i would imagine that those movies are almost required viewing yeah uh, in your neck of the woods you yeah, know totally totally they're like it's it's i think like the joke of like dorm posters in in the u.s is maybe like like your, your, your pulp fiction poster up there i think the uk mm. it's it's also that um but it's your train spotting poster and it's your um snatch or lockstock poster i thought that's the i'm male i'm in first year of my undergraduate degree and i like films absolutely um, there you go you don't need to talk to me about movies i will talk to you about them exactly <laughs> <laughs> so i mean what, what have you seen of him since then then so you, you like Lockstock, you like snatch then what happens well i mean I you saw rock and roller this... presumably and rock and roller is absolute crap i did well i was a little mixed on rock and roller you've been mixed had, on rock and roller yeah had some solid moments but i think it's uh, a bit of a decline towards what a lot of yeah. people uh, now associate with guys it's a bit rocky but um, ultimately a roller exactly yes yeah. um normally uh, his more recent movies are extremely watchable they have the same very uh yeah. quick fast-paced style of his earlier work mm. the kind of uh complex plots almost you know like uh yeah. like bits of a clock that all kind of work together like clockwork yeah yeah like yeah, clockwork yeah. but sometimes there's a couple seconds that get slipped there yeah and i feel like a little bit more of that has occurred with his uh more recent films mm. um i saw the gentleman did not I did enjoy not, it. I did not see that. I genuinely watched the trailer mm. and there was a, a racist joke in it about someone had a foreign name and that was funny. And I was like, no, I'm good. And also I think just the, the Guy Ritchie kind of like thing and vibe is just not for me anymore. Um, it's, uh, yeah. I mean, just from watching the trailer alone, it comes off as a little self-indulgent. Yes. Some might see it as a kind of return to form for uh, Guy Ritchie, but yeah. personally... I see it as almost verging on self-parody there. Mm. Uh, I've struggled to really continue to enjoy his work. And I'm I'm not sure if his earlier work would hold up the same way if I saw it now. Yeah, I, I think I agree. May so, have to give him a look. So do you think that like Bullet Train is like is is reminds you of like Guy Ritchie in a positive way or in a negative way then? Honestly, a little bit of both. That's uh, really interesting. I do feel like the uh, overall structure in kind of propulsive uh style of filmmaking um is strong and does do a lot to kind of buoy a uh, bullet train as yeah. it uh, barrels along yeah. Uh, yeah 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 and i also think that some of his kind of character work with a lot of these uh very kind of outrageous interesting characters that mm. are shown on screen do a lot to keep the film engaging and interesting you do want to be engaged and interested do you think on this bullet train just sorry just, just stepping back from the rehearsal for Please. a second do you, do you think that this bullet train review we spent too much time talking about a person that didn't direct the movie probably probably but maybe but, maybe, maybe only feels that way because we did it a few times I, I like i don't know do you feel it do you feel like it's a worthwhile diversion is it or does it overshadow, overshadow I, the film i really I do okay um, I, I do because i don't think that you can really talk about bullet train yeah i haven't seen it I've, I've seen the movie so it's just... yeah um it just feels incredibly uh indebted to that 
Um, okay. Yeah, 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 I do have a couple other things that I can say about bullet trains. Yeah, 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 yeah. Please, please. The bullet points of the bullet train. Go. Mm, the bullet points. Yes. So I will say, uh, right off the bat, good train. Um, <laughs> Sorry, Kyle, I just was, um, wasn't expecting good train. <laughs> so I'll be ready for that. If one says good train, um, I, I will be able to keep. I'll be able to keep. Give that. Do you think he's going to say good train? Oh, you know, I hope so. I really I do. So. If not, shall I ask him, was it a good train? I'll ask, is the train? I, I think you have to, because in any kind of train yeah. movie, the train it's is impossible good. Yeah. to divorce that from the train that the mm. movie takes place. No, I fully agree. I mean, and this is a bullet train. Have you been on the bullet train? Absolutely. Oh, oh no, I have not personally. <laughs> I don't think Vaughn has. <laughs> uh, I, I have. I've, I've been on the boat train. It plays a little song when you get to the station. It's really, really cool. Mm. And they call it the Shinkansen, which sounds way cooler. Um, that that yeah, really does. does. Yeah, it really does. I've, that's a good anecdote. I'll put the I've been on a train anecdote. Yeah, you're right. Trains are integral to the history of cinema. Absolutely. Yes. Unst uh, I mean, you love Unstoppable, a film we both enjoy. The train that never stops. Mm, yes. Yes. Tony Scott's also, also great in that it, uh, works to the kind of almost bottle episode kind of mm, uh, that's why train stuff are good train stuff train. is great yeah it, it exactly. very I totally agree the real world does not need to intrude on a no. good train movie no I, I, um, I, I totally agree however something does intrude in bullet train and oh, that yeah? is a whole lot of kooky assassins so that. that's uh also to this film's kind of uh strengths and detriment uh in that there's a lot of folks on this train um mm. some of them are pretty good strangers on a train so perhaps much. like strangers on a train mm, yes yes i will say that uh the sheer amount of characters and motivations and assassins all going on yeah. in this confined space in this confined time uh can sort of bog things down yeah um you know a train traveling from point a to point b at an important thing the trains do hour. exactly it should move forward at a pretty yeah. consistent pace and bullet train just does not i do think that it kind of falls prey to uh prey? its director's kind of worst tendencies to mm. be a little meta uh, really focus on that kind of uh um, bullet train can kind of rely on an overly quippy bantery mm. style of dialogue that just doesn't always work to its strengths. Yeah. Uh, again, it feels kind of more like it's aping and parodying kind of the Guy Ritchie style yeah. of snap. Which, as dialogue. we know, you both like, dislike, and are indifferent on. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I've got a lot of mixed feelings. Oh, so that, that's Bullet Train. I think so. There's, 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 a, there's a film that we've both seen, so we'll save that to last for our grab bag. Um, but um, I'll go to me first. Um, I got a chance to watch the novelist's film, um, the new film from Hong Sang Soo, who, as you know, I am could not be a bigger fan of. Um, so Hong Sang Soo, um, for those who don't know, is a contemporary Korean director, um, Democratic People's Republic of Korea. Um, no. He's in the Republic of Korea. He's not from North Korea. Um, so yeah, um, South Korean director, um, R.O.K. Um, and he, I, I think he's most famous for um, On the Beach at Night Alone, or is it On the Beach Alone at Night? I forget the way around. It's a Whitman poem from the title, um, which is an absolutely fabulous film. Also, Right Now, Wrong Then. I think The Woman mm. Who Ran, which was my first Hong Sang-soo movie, was the first for a lot of people. Um, 
my favorite of his is the day he arrives i've seen all of his films um absolutely adore them i made a video for the stacks channel where you can watch um, where i give like an introduction to his um he makes the the, the joke about hong sang Su is he's made 32 of the same film um but the the beauty of hong sang Su for me is that he exactly very similar directors i feel very very similar um both show that men are trash one loves it one does not um so the, the beauty of the hong sang Su film is it's same but different every time of he just has this so it reminds me of ozu and i don't think you've watched that much ozu but like you know an ozu film when you're watching it of like it has the key verbs of ozu cinema it is like so functionally him like mm. there comes a sense of being like why would you watch all of them but like in in that structure he finds a great degree of diversity but also i mean cinemas into poetry a lot but what i like about um the literary merit of a hong sang su film is because because you know his techniques, they become devices themselves in the same way that if you read a lot of poetry, you know what a simile can do, you know what alliteration can do, you know what plosive sounds can do, et cetera, et cetera. So when you see him do one of his like tra trademark zooms, you know what it's being used for. So he uses his techniques as like devices, like literary merit, and it's just, just really, really beautiful. He also makes this kind of like, and I, I feel like the more films that you watch, I mean, we've watched a lot of films, the more you seek something that is unfilmic, which sounds ridiculous, but the more you seek something that is like outside of like canonical film, the things that are different, and he makes a different cinema. He is very much indebted to Eric Roma, for sure, but his cinema is very different. And I think he's beginning more so and more so. So this is his fourth slash fifth film in two years. Like he is really cracking them out. Um, the novelist film is absolutely wonderful. It is very much a Hong Sang Su film. Um, it is about a novelist who decides to make a film. And his films are about filmmakers often making films. And clearly the filmmakers are him. But usually he focuses on a female perspective. Um, and it's really, really interesting. He gives women a lot of space in his films. And men are usually there to be foils and to reveal kind of like the patriarchal structures, limitations, etc. This film does all the tropes of Hong Sang-soo. And then every now and then just like casually like pulls away from it. And just like doesn't go the way you're expecting. And like with like the underpinning of 31 of the Hong Sang-soo films, you're just like, whoa! And if you're not, you don't really get that. But it is a... It is a film that just constantly surprises you, that like edges towards the cinematic, like sets up like a story, then doesn't really go there. And it's like, there's a bit where a character is like embarrassed and like berated, you're like, ah, oh, Hong Sang Su, this man's put on the and then, and then she, she gives it back. And it's fantastic. There's a bit where some drink is drunk, which is a Hong Sang Su staple, and usually big stories come out. Guy starts her story, and the lady's like, you know what? I don't care. And you're like, oh, we're not going there. And like in any other film, you're like, what's going on? And in this, you're like, whoa, revelation. It's just like, I don't know. He's just made this like so specific cinema. And this film is very much about, about the spontaneous and beautifully so. It's about giving in to just like escaping and living and just doing things as they, because he has this, this such curated style. And there's a bit towards the end, which I'm going to try not to spoil, but it's so wonderful where it it's a fourth wall breaking moment into something else that's just stunningly beautiful. Um, and really human and really lovely and it has this moment then reflects back on the rest of the film and projects forward and then you have this again like just like slashing of expectations the way through and the thing that it's always pushing to the front is the spontaneous the human and the real and how that's often uncinematic and we have to divert from cinema together i just thought it's absolutely wonderful i mean i'm i am you know hong pilled as they say in the business but i thought it was absolutely wonderful it continues to make great movies I think that, uh, while I've not seen that film, it sounds phenomenal from your description. Thank and you. it also sounds very of a part with uh, some of the films and shows that we will be discussing today. Uh, mm, meditations yes. on filmmaking, on relationships and yeah. empathy uh, are of course heightened when they can really be 
put in uh, in context with the kind of language and universe that uh, directors are able to create within and without bodies of their work. And I think that, that is certainly something that we will be talking about throughout this podcast. You, you know what, Vaughn, you nailed that. And even if in, in the recording, like if you don't make the Nathan Fielder link there, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make the Nathan, because that's so good. Like, I, so I, I will wait for you to make it if you don't. I'll be like, you know what? Because like, I feel that's a similarity to our main, our main like um, focus today, because um, very much the rehearsal is about kind of like interactions performance that we are all socially performing. And Hong Sang-soo, a trope of all of his films is that all interactions performance, like identity is performance. Like that Judith Butler idea obviously goes before that idea of like performing gender goes back to the like identities that we construct and perform them through a whole bunch of things. And I just I just love that about his films. And it's why I get so out of the rehearsal as well. So that'd be a, a great thing to come later. So um, you saw Glorious, which I don't even know what that is. I don't either. <laughs> <laughs> um, hold up, let me let me pull this up. I I don't think I saw that at all. <laughs> I mean, you did see it. You wrote a review about it. Yes. <laughs> I don't know what okay, it is. Okay. I never heard of it. I don't know what the movie yeah, is. Okay. Wow. I totally. I totally missed this. I, um, what I was thinking is like, it's called Glorious, but you gave it a two stars. So I was thinking like a joke being like, I think you'd like this being like, you saw Glorious, but I'm guessing it wasn't. It was not. Or should and... I be like, oh, was it more of a glorious mess? Mm, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. let me um, let me peruse this review. Real but he quick would say here. that. That's, yeah, he likes to peruse. <laughs> um, okay, 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 okay. Wow, he gets some flowery language sometimes, Stephen. <laughs> he, he does. I, have you seen how long his sentences are? When I, I mean, I love Vaughn's oh. writing, but when I edit any of his work, I'm just like, that sentence is far too long. It should be three. Steven, it's I, beautiful. I, but I love the guy. I, I think mm. he, he has some great imagery, um, yeah. but I, I'm a comms major. And so many times <laughs> I'm like, oh, buddy, we, we got to cut like half of this. I I really wish I could I could edit a few of his works. I feel like I could really help him out. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Hi, Vaughn. You're, you're editing this. It's funny because you're editing this right now, Vaughn, and you could cut that out. You could actually cut that out. It's so meta. Oh. oh my gosh um okay 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 i think I'm, i can't I'm wait for for Vaughn to get on my cousin and make him insult me <laughs> <laughs> there's plenty of them that will do so i'll be honest there's a lot of room there a lot of room in that space um vaughn just an aside love your work pal <laughs> i love your work too Vaughn. we really like it we're, we're, we're fans you write really nicely <sighs> okay um so you saw a film called Glorious, um, which I know nothing about, but it seems it was more of a glorious mess. Mm, um, that's a good way of describing it, Stephen. Uh, it yeah, I think he'll say that as well. I think I put, that felt really good. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I think that's good. Um, mm, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> uh, it is a bit of a glorious mess. Yeah. In that it looks incredibly striking. It is uh, gorgeous, really interesting, has a lot of texture to the mm. style and film and the look of it that makes it really interesting, especially when it is uh, so focused on this kind of Lovecraftian, unknowable Ooh. horror type feel of 
So I will say that uh, this film does handle Lovecraft a lot more competently and effectively than what I think a lot of films do. Um, Interesting. A lot of films get lost in their uh, attempt to, also in the racism, uh, (laughs) but in their attempt to kind of portray the unknowable, these cosmic horrors and fears. I feel color out of space. That is something that's tough to put on film <laughs> which is why i think color, i think color out of space I don't, I don't think that was a great movie but i think it did a good job of the like like the conceit of that film being that there's a color that drives you mad because it's unthinkable like did a really good job of, of, of literalizing that um I, i'm Absolutely. always interested there's such a like that cosmic horror idea is one of my favorite like types of horror and as much as you like um annihilation much more than i do i feel that gets into some aspect of like the the thing that's overwhelming and unknowable being the scary thing actually i think our joint favorite kind of like cosmic horror thing would be older states the idea of being like the mind-bending unknown brain molding thing is the thing that brings you to your knees so that that is a thing that i think we both enjoy absolutely yeah i'd say i uh, you know like from beyond would uh Ooh, also yes, from beyond, be another rules. good example yes of uh yes of, of kind of portraying oh, what a great the, movie not not just the unknowable but its effect on the characters that are within it yeah and kind of their own state of minds uh i will die on the hill of uh, annihilation being one of the best uh, encapsulations and uh vehicles for showing that I just, I don't know, again, I, I, I've told it so many times, just Annihilation. I watched the movie, I didn't I didn't love it, but I liked it. And then I read the goddamn book and I was like, why didn't you make a movie of this book? This book is absolutely, because Annihilation, I think even you will agree, like it's got some cool things, but it's very much, it's a known kind of story and idea done very, very well. And I read the book Annihilation, Jeff Vanderbeer, the first of the trilogy, great trilogy. And I was like, this book is like nothing I've read. Like the stories and characters and ideas in here are so unique. And this would make a great movie. And Jeff Garland's just like, Nah, Alex Garland and uh, Jeff Garland. Alex Garland. Jeff, Jeff Garland. <laughs> Jeff Garland was like, "Yeah, I'll make a movie." I'm like, "Are you watch that like, one. <laughs> like Jeff Garland? Aren't you being like investigated for abuse?" And he said, "Shh, leave that alone. Curb that enthusiasm." And I'm like, "Okay." Um, so yeah, so it's 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 just not it's not the book, which makes me sound like a like a dick, but it's not the book. Yeah, the book's just so and, good. Uh, yes, you know that I'm a lot hotter on Annihilation than you are. Yeah, uh, the movie. Have not read the book. Um, it's good. You, you would really like it. Love, if you could read, you would love it. I know. I, I know. I know. I, I promise I'm going to learn at some point. Uh, Mal is giving me lessons in uh, mm. her off hours. And what I love about Annihilation is how it just entirely unmoors you from uh, the kind of urban environment that it begins in and it kind of uh, recedes into this I just love. I just, I just. I just love the phrase. Un- I just. Just unmoors. There was so good. Um, mm. I'm just. I'm gonna be. If he doesn't say that, I'm gonna be disappointed. Uh, I mean, he should. Come on. What, I might drop it into. To, co- I might keep to describe saying describe cosmic horror. Um, I'm gonna keep <laughs> saying that I'm unmoored to him and just trying to get it into his like into his just like idiolect, just so that he just like puts mm. it out there. Mm. Just, I, I, I would be shocked that. if that word hasn't snuck into a lot of his uh, his reviews and essays. <laughs> yeah, he just just hates mooring. He's, he's just does not like mooring. The boat keeps the on free. going. <laughs> free the boats, says Bourne. So glorious, you didn't like it. Um, I didn't. Yeah. No, um, no. And I, and I wanted to. As I said, the visuals are very interesting and arresting, but in comparison to a more kind of sneakily character-based movie like Annihilation, Mm -hmm. this one just doesn't have the human element. And the 
allure of uh, kind of Lovecraftian fiction really requires for a full effectiveness, um, strong characters who yeah. react to the horrors in ways that uh, the viewer can really respond to and with and kind of uh, see themselves in. And that's where I think that this movie uh, really falls short. Um, I will say, got a pretty solid jk simmons performance so oh, yeah, yeah that is I'm, always always love the simmons always love the simmons i had a long-standing yes. thing that the movie movie may be bad but he'll be the best thing in it and he'll be great i don't care what it is he is just outstanding um that was kind of tested a bit with um oh god what's that absolutely just like crappy um oh what's that guy called i don't like what's that guy you you like him you don't mind him you like him he writes stuff that you like, and I'm just blanking on his name. I like a lot guy. of guys. <laughs> the guy, the guy you like, Aaron Sorkin. That um, the crappy Aaron Sorkin movie. Um, God, Vaughn likes Aaron Sorkin. What the hell? <laughs> I'm presuming he does. Oh, this is gonna make this tough. Vaughn, get your shit together. Man. <laughs> being the Ricardos, being the Ricardos was the movie I was thinking of. Um, oh yeah. yes, he was, he was not good in that. <laughs> Um, but that's because Aaron Sorkin can't write a script. Um, has written good scripts. Mm -hmm. Social Network is very, very good. Social Network is great. Great movie. Um, Absolutely. But being the Ricardos is, I mean, it's not, I mean, Molly's Game, dreadful. Chicago Seven, dreadful. Being the Ricardos, dreadful. Aaron Sorkin, stop. Stop. Don't get me started talking about the Social Network. You, you love it. Ivan have opinions. <laughs> yeah, strong opinions. I mean, does your cousin Lucas like the social network? Um, cousin Lucas also likes the social okay, network. Okay, good, good, uh, good. Not anywhere near to the extent that Vaughn does, because no, uh, no, no. I know that he is just like its biggest evangelist. Just yeah, about. yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I liked Steve Jobs as well. I thought that was good. Um, yeah, that was a, that was a that was, yeah. it's, uh, Sorkin, like when directed, can be very, very good. Someone that like understands that Sorkin is good at a type of dialogue, but like is just. I don't know, there's so much they can, This is not the Sorkin podcast. Um, mm. there's so there's so much he cannot do, um, and I'm just fed up with him. Um, Sorkin digression. I don't know. I, I don't know. Maybe I, maybe we'll go to that. I don't know. It feels maybe worthwhile, yeah. but there's been there's been a lot. So that's glorious. Um, so we, we, we for our last grab bag, um, we both watched a movie. Um, separately, of course. Uh, we both watched. They slash them get it stylized as they forward slash them because it's a slasher. I think you put it best. What are the? I mean, you said not only is it more offensive, it's also just boring. It's so Which boring. Is really, just a cardinal <laughs> sin for a slasher. I agree. I mean, this film, I don't know. It just doesn't want to be a slasher. I feel like. The slasher genre, I wrote, I wrote about this in, in review, which is up on the website, the sense of being like, the this calls back to Friday the 13th. Um, and even by, you know, casting him in Bacon, there is the illusion there. Um, there's, there's some seem to be wider illusions to a movie you like, which I really, really do not like at all, but which we won't talk mm. about. Um, a certain Harvey Weinstein movie that you love. The Burning, um, The Burning, which I think is absolutely crap. I actually have a podcast out there about oh. The Burning, um, Nasty Path Podcast. That film is just predatory and gross. Um, mm. And the moment when you realise that it comes from that man, and there are so many like luring like shower scenes, and it is so, oh God, like just the, the, the framing of sexuality in that film is disgusting. The film is deeply ableist, but you really enjoy it, fine. Um, so you, have, you had a great time in that film. Should I, should I be that combative? Hmm? 
Should I be that competitive with him? Should I really like to take him to task for? Oh, I think you can. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think so. Good I mean, I, I feel like that's a good, like, you know, a good dynamic from the co-host. You can't all just yeah. like be agreeing on everything. Yeah. You got to bring your own separate kind of, uh, you know, understanding. Morals. And, I've got to bring uh, my morals to it. When, yeah, he doesn't, when, yeah. he doesn't, when he doesn't have morals, I've uh, got to bring the morals. Yeah, I, I, I really hate The Burning. I, re- I just think it's disgusting. I've watched it a few times. I already watched it in the podcast, but I had to watch it again. I just think it's just, it has some good Tom Savini effects. There's like a few good kill scenes, but it's just a okay. grotesque, leering, horrible movie. Um, oh, man. Got well, speaking, of, speaking of grotesque and leering. Um, yeah. They slash them. They then is uh, just really poor. It's and terrible. on so many levels, it doesn't work on a, a a level of like filmmaking and that yep. it's pretty shoddily made yeah uh, i agree it does not do a good job of building up suspense well, there's of... one. it just there's like two films here there's like one where it's just like here is some some lgbtqia plus characters um hanging out at a conversion camp and it's like it's presented as being like they're having a jolly time even though the, the edges are disgusting mm. um and that's the one thing and the other thing there's like slash in the background the key slashes right Friday the 13th, the whole point is the teens have sex and they die. And when you hear that there is a slasher set at conversion camp with queer characters, you're like, oh, so it's going to be just an hour and a half of just queer people dying. I don't really want to watch that. And the movie at least no. realises not to do that. But then doesn't know what to do. So it's like, we're not going to kill the queer characters. Don't worry. Instead, we're going to kill off the camp counsellors. And you're like, you mean the bigots? I'm here for this. Now, spoilers for slash them. What if that was a problem? I'm like, no, movie. No. No, I, yeah, as you say, it's it's two separate movies, and mm-hmm. neither of them are good. No, uh, one is strangely homophobic. One is deeply boring and terribly written. Yeah, and at the very least, Quiffo. I would take the boring one over the just uh, offensive. Yes, I agree. Queerphobic. I mean, I might just go so far as to say that it hates anyone that is watching it, but it, it definitely hates me as a viewer of the LGBTQ community. It, yeah. uh, I can't imagine um, in 2022 that yeah. this is a movie that will have much appeal to, frankly, anyone. Yeah, and, and again, I think one of its cardinal sins is just being unbelievably boring. It's just a, mm-hmm. a crappy movie with, like, relies on characters, has no character to it, repetitive, dull, has a sense of, like, tension or fear. This has been, like, like hunted. Like, the appeal of slasher movies often is the slashers, the villains, become icons, like there's a reason the Jason movies start becoming called Jason movies. It's the reason it's Freddy versus Jason. People love Pinhead and call him Hellraiser. Like I know it's not a slasher, but like horror icons, it's people like the killer. And then this movie, yeah. there's no sense of like understanding that. Like horror can be so cathartic. We're not saying we should all go run around and kill like bigoted camp counselors, but the film depicting that would not be saying that and this one doesn't realize that the film at the end is like well we can't just murder them I'm like no one thinks that my man this is using a hyperbolized lens to show the actual violence done against these people and like it's a cathartic revenge act it is a way of showing through genre logic that we should take a stand and then it's like you know what you know what we shouldn't do take a stand it just doesn't understand that horror logic is a thing it's a metaphor uh, it pisses me off terrible movie well, in, in slasher movies, more so than most other horror movies, don't necessarily need to be scary. As, no. as you're saying, they need to inspire a cathartic response, yeah. an emotional response. Be and fun. Good the, kills. The only emotional response that I feel when watching this movie is just disappointment, anger, and boredom. 
so um, that's the recent releases. But now for the main event, I like one of the main event. I think that, that, that's really good. Um, mm. The main event, um, we're going to talk about Nathan Fielder's um, television show, the rehearsal. Um, we both watched it. Um, your writing review of it that may be up on the site by this time. Um, a hard thing to write about. I look forward to see what you put out there. Um, people talk about so much. I mean, you don't, you watch such little TV, um, even less than I do. And I don't watch much TV at all. Like I'm at least watching not Game of Thrones. Well, I watched, mm. I actually didn't watch the second episode. So I'm not yeah. watching not Game of Thrones. I watched episode one of not Game of Thrones. And it was, eh, I guess. I know nothing about it. <laughs> you watch it. I know nothing about it. Um, but, when I saw that you were interested and were were so caught up in the conversation around this TV show, and I know that um, Jack spoke about it on a Stacks Office Hours episode, so I was like, I should watch this. And because I was out of the country, because it doesn't, it's not being shown in the UK, I had a chance to watch it. And I have thoughts um, to unpack, which we're going to work out. Of. It's difficult to talk about, but first of all, what's your experience with one Nathan Fielder? So, I... You are correct in that I do not watch a lot of television. And generally when I do, it is something that has really caught uh, a lot of attention, not just from the general public, but from reviewers and critics that uh, Mm. really are talking about a show as something that is more. Exactly. Um, (laughs) Interestingly enough, uh, probably this is the first show since... Game of Thrones to have the just kind of cultural. Um, hmm, how do I want to put this? Oh, actually, um, I, I, I like that, and I think I'll, I think I will I will interject there because I, I think that's the HBO moment. Because I'm like, oh, you're yeah. right. Actually, the link to, to Game of Thrones is really interesting because, like, obviously HBO is having a moment at the moment, um, mostly mm. a bad one. And what's fascinating for me is HBO is both in all the headlines because it's just destroying itself as a streaming platform. Um, its output, so it was like, what are they doing over there? There's obviously the, the the Batgirl craziness. There's the destroying of animation craziness. And at the same time, they've got the two most talked about television shows that they've managed to like finally like reassert themselves as appointment TV which has fell off in this like the splitting of the streams where is it on apple tv is it on netflix is it blah blah peacock's a thing to be i don't think they've got tv but it's fun to say to be um etc etc paramount has a streaming service where you could watch halo and i'm like i would watch halo i would watch anything series i'm not getting paramount to watch a mm-hmm. halo that may be only nah. okay i don't know um so and what yeah despite despite the turbulence despite the disappointed what are they doing over there type of feeling about hbo there is also that totally just unbelieving what are they doing over there (laughs) that continues to make it just a vital platform and a kind of vital content producer Mm. that i hope they can find a way to stick with they do. I mean, I'm I'm not a huge fan of not Game of Thrones so far, but it's nice they found a thing that's got an audience back. People are talking about. I actually really like serialized TV. Um, mm. I think what got me off TV was it all releasing in one go, and I'm like, I'm just not going to watch this now. I'm just not going to watch this. Um, but when a show came on that was there an episode a week, I often like catch up and do actually get onto it. So like, I did not like the Obi Wan series, but I watched all of it because it was appointment. I Ms. Marvel, I quite liked. Probably wouldn't have got past episode two. Actually, I would have got to episode three because two was so good if it was all in one go because it was like once a week, got through it. So I like that. And the rehearsal, I think, 
takes such great advantage of that of being like you are going to have to think about this episode in that downtime but i mean a you... huge a huge strength of television in my eyes someone who does yeah. not watch a lot of television yes is that those kind of water cooler moments yes that's the phrase i was going for. a yeah, film yeah, yeah. Uh, where, where a show can be more than yeah a procession of sounds and images but something that really makes you dig into it in anticipation of a hmm. of a set of characters of a set of circumstances that you will be coming back to and yeah. that's where television can really kind of sink its hooks in in a way that film just simply does not have the ability to it's like long form escalation it works really well for and i think that's what the rehearsal is to do so nathan fielder i mean you've watched nathan for you haven't you i have yeah, I, no, I, I I watched a little bit of it um, and I was going to watch more of it and then I just didn't have time, unfortunately. Um, so you went into it with a military. So Nathan Fielder, um, Nathan for you, you're a big fan and the rehearsal. Um, I'll be honest, I'm not sure how to talk about the show. So Vaughn, if I was just like, hello, friend, do you want to see Synecdoche, New York? You're like, what are you talking about? No, I do not. If I I'm don't like, know that film. You do not know that film. If I'm like, what about Symbiopsychoplasm, take one? It's about a documentary, it's about a documentary, it's about a documentary. What about this great Japanese movie I found? It's like a zombie film, it's a zombie film, it's not a zombie film, it's not a zombie film. What about mm. that? Fantastic. You're like, no, I won't do that. I'm like, what about this great comedy I found? It's a little bit meta. Meta's hot right now. It's a bit so. meta. Watch the first episode. It's really funny. It's a guy doing a pub quiz team. Just, just watch it. It's funny. You'll get it. And you're watching it, right? I am. I am. It's on HBO. It's an hour long. If that, you're watching it. It's a comedy. You're in. And then suddenly you've watched a thing that is in the same conversation as those things I've talked about, including Synecdoche, New York, a movie you've never heard of. No. Um, well, I haven't heard of, uh, I've heard of it. I have not seen Synecdoche, New York. I have watched. Yes, you've heard um, the movie from the same director of the film that we've named our show after. That's good to know. Yes, uh, yeah, some some deep podcast lore here. Um, one one film that I have watched that I think is very much in conversation yeah. with the rehearsal is uh, William Greaves' Symbiopsychotoxoplasm, Take One. Take One. And it, so uh, I'll, just to give a, a little bit of kind of background for uh, the viewer in case the that viewer, maybe the has listener, not yeah. already made you just uh, turn the podcast off. Um, thank you for sticking with us. Uh, it's only going to get more pretentious from here. Yeah, um, yeah, incredibly so. <laughs> we name just like, we're just like name dropping five films. Are they foreign enough for you? <laughs> no, no. Um, sorry. That Have last you seen Irma uh, Symbio Psychotaxophasm is a uh, take It's one. an American it's movie. It's an American movie, all right? <laughs> uh, specifically, this is a documentary from 1968 uh, directed by William Greaves. And um, it also is starring William Greaves. Also starring. Ah, As the there director. There may be something William to build Greaves. off of there. Um, and uh, this quasi documentary is essentially a uh, um, hmm, a documentary of an attempt to uh, film a movie. Yeah. And the movie is not especially interesting. Uh, what is interesting is all that occurs around it. The mm -hmm. fact Process. that uh, you are watching cameras, watching cameras, watching people who are being watched by other people. And uh, the documentary is far less on the face of it, controlled than the rehearsal in that it takes place yeah. within a public park. 
they are watching the people that are around them as those people are watching them. And a lot of that feeds into ideas of performance yeah. as are seen, not just by the actors who are not only now just acting for a film, but are acting for the film that is being filmed around that, where their own personal yes. sense of self and identities comes into play, but also the people around the film. Uh, we see the different cinematographers, the director, the bystanders and cops that are watching the film kind of get drawn into the performance. And we see how their mannerisms, if they're not put on or at least captured and edited within the film in a way that really brings into question- uh, Are you just reading Vaughn's reviews? <laughs> no, I'm not. This is all I've talked about in my head here. Man, this is great. This is, this is fantastic. <laughs> This really brings into question what is performative, what is scripted, and what is authentic. And yeah. more importantly, whether any of that authenticity is relegated to the screen and to performances that are mediated by media and culture, or whether that is just kind of an integral part of how we relate to each other and act within our everyday lives. That, that, that's beautiful and I agree. And I think the, the, the rehearsal has those ideas and different ones, but packages it in a more accessible outer layer. I don't think it's the most accessible show, but it has enough to it get you there. Is not. Um, but I think what the rehearsal adds to it is the, the specific dialogue of reality TV. And I think the thing that works me the whole way through is the reminder of the impact of putting a camera on somebody. There is a complicity the whole time in the rehearsal of they may not know the machinations behind and there is an ethical concern there, but they know they are being filmed for something. And it is so aware of the transformative power of a camera of when you film something, you make it different. There's actually a Hong Sang-soo film about that. Um, there's a Hong Sang-soo yeah. film called, called Claire's Camera, um, which is a lovely film, which I think we've seen. Um, and it's, it's got this lovely line in it of Claire has a magic camera when she takes a picture and it changes things. And what this film actually reveals is the camera changes nothing, but we change, we know that we are being filmed. And that's so integral to the Hong Sang-soo oeuvre of that sense of filming changes behavior. And so outside of that, being observed changes behavior. So Stephen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push back on that a little bit in that I do think that in the process of filming, the, I, I don't know, um, true, the true reality of what is being filmed is at once both sharpened, but also yeah. kind of flattened and diminished. Okay, I agree. In that, in that you know, um, authorial control uh, dictates that what you are seeing is not a true reflection of reality. It is a particular, hmm, um, what is being filmed is not a true reflection of reality, but a controlled slice and vision of it. And yeah. that is what I think Nathan is really interested in uh, expanding yeah. on and really engaging with. And what I like about the show is it has so much like almost like pseudo Brechtian elements that like that show the unreality of the situation. Like there are gags about the constantly changing children to front the unreality, but then there is still that human call the whole time. It's like, even when surrounded by artifice, by all those things. And that's what you're saying. Like it does, there is an element of reality that's sharpened by this process, that it pulls it out. And in our next part, we'll talk about this idea of 
the end goal of that and we actually get because mm. i think that's where the conclusion goes so i think what we'll do next is we'll do a breakdown of these episodes go through and we'll see what the rehearsal becomes the episodes then so we start with the pub quiz episode which is a great comedy episode i think like it is a really good introduction to the series um is amusing Absolutely. has clever bits i feel sets a tone to not be mean-spirited i think it's like everyone else that's in the show kind of deserves a bit what they're getting because they are revealed to be interesting yeah often negatively and I think that this interesting. is this is an interesting kind of way of uh, of building upon yeah. some of the some of the central kind of uh questions and complaints that a lot of people have had about uh nathan's work and specifically yeah. uh nathan for you before this was whether or not anything that was going on is too mean-spirited yes yes and totally i think that that is a uh a very valid concern in that that is very much something that I think Nathan is trying to get the audience to question and consider. Basically, and very little, Nathan, that I've watched. Very, very little. There hmm. is that sense of the joke is that he is disrupting and ruining businesses. Like the joke is that he is actually getting in the way and making things bad for the, for the, for the focus of comedy. Um, even if it's good in the long run, because all press is good press. Whereas I think you're right. He gets out of his way in this episode of like, no, I am using this to actively help someone. And but the I think arc of this important... is successful. Like it is a helpful therapeutic process. And I think an important part of that kind of uh, central conceit there is that his influences on these businesses is a two-way street. Yeah. Uh, it may be premeditated by him, but it is something that is collaborated on, that is made factual and real by mm. the work of uh, the business owners that choose to go along with it yeah. and uh, are kind of subjecting themselves their own personalities, their own idiosyncrasies um, to what Nathan is trying to do. And what, if you're working with Nathan Fielder, Fielder you must know is coming. I mean, yeah. if, if someone, Nathan if you is a reflection of marketing, release, this is a reflection on reality TV. Like that is just exactly. like, yes, excellent. Um, so that's so, episode one. So to that end, I do think that the first episode is a- it's very, uh, very good. A very good introduction in that uh, core, while of course he's a bit of an oddball, is largely a pretty likable and- You, you know, root for him, you 100% root for him and want him to succeed. And I, what I Absolutely. really like about this episode is that we, and I think as the show in general, it, it, it kind of like deconstructs our idea of what we expect and what is real in a very like human way. And this does that through the, you hear a person described and she is framed really quite negatively. And then when you see the reality of that person, you realize that this person is actually very endearing, very, very nice. And it's just like, actually mm. what's constructed is someone's fears of that person. And it shows that the people we get on with, we have a, we have a, to get back to self nonsense. So the, the people that we know, we have a version of them in our heads that does not actually add up to that person. And meeting her first through his description, and then we later find out that's actually a reflection of an insecurity, because he clearly very much likes this person hugely on person and his negative framing is a way of him not wanting to really address the the depth of his emotion and that as a way of showing relationship i think is is beautiful and is brilliant like really and this is really something, brilliant it, i think it, i absolutely agree and it's something that we see uh as the show will generally spiral uh further and further <laughs> yeah. away from this kind of uh 
central framing, um, we see how that is reflected through the character and also outside of that, the creator of Nathan and mm. how closely these uh, ideas of understanding and this really kind of uh, introspection into extreme empathy and how we relate to yeah. others is constructed by ourselves and from our, our history, from our past, with which we use to kind of uh, construct um, an idea of how we can act in the future. Can, can we skip to the very end for a second? Because I, I, I like... I feel the very, very end of the show is really important. Um, I mm. love the ending. A, a friend of ours from the Discord, Juno, um, spoke about how it was very abrupt. And it is. But the abruptness of the ending, the more I think about it, I love the moment, is 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 perfection of... You have this moment at the end where there's like quite a, like a existentially kind of like terrifying moment of Nathan like being like, no, I'm your dad. I am your dad. And you're like, and oh my for God. listeners... For listeners, this is the end of the season. Yeah, 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 yeah. sorry. Yeah, I'll make that, when I do that again, I'll make that much clearer. You're right. Um, he's like, no, dad. And he's like, do you not mean mom? Because he's in it, because he is playing someone's mama's boy. And you're like, yes. because the theme of the episode has been like how the process was externalized from Nathan and now is internalized back to him. And that's the arc of the show of he projects a thing out there. And that's the about, about art that you project it out there and it projects back to you. And that's a good way that it arcs. And then it has it ends on a gag, which is breaking kayfabe to use wrestler speak, breaking the fiction of him being like, was that a good read? Was that a good thing? And you realize that whole thing about him doing the mask clip of being like, dad, was a joke, was a bit, was never actually real. And that sense of the constructed exit smile was not real. So for me, the thematic arc of the show is that reality is performative. It definitively is so. But that doesn't mean it works other way. You cannot find it the other way around. Like reality is performative, but through performance, you cannot find reality. Through these machinations, he cannot get to the core of people. You do need to get out there and live properly. You cannot manifest a reality around you, even if reality is false and way that we understand things to be false. And I thought that was, in a way it doesn't lecture about it or talk about it, a really profound and very important thing to say of a rugby then being like, no, 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 this, this is a joke. This is a gag. Like, this is not a thing that's tearing me apart. This is not a real thing. You can't get that. The method cannot do that. And I, I, I totally agree. I think that uh, the rehearsal is very interested in probing at the lines and divisions between reality and uh, reality, falsehood, and how they relate to authenticity. Yes, and the great fact one. that none of those are necessarily mutually exclusive or more or less real than the other. Um, I would say that uh, one movie that we have not mentioned yet, uh, Perfect Copy, is also- or Certified um, Copy, Certified Copy, certified is, copy. Is, is, is the name of the movie, a, a phenomenal yes. film. Phenomenal film. And I think that it's very uh, likewise interested in kind of probing at what point um, a performance surpasses uh, an yeah. act and reflects reality, reflects history. And I, I know we've, we've talked about enough other pieces of media on this podcast yeah, 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 already, yeah. so I don't want to get too bogged down there. But I think that uh, it's, it's very similarly concerned with what constitutes using one's reality to, uh, to dictate 
how one acts and how one uh, prepares themselves for a future that we can only prepare for so much and that we have a distinct lack of control over. Yeah. And I think that's really seen in the rehearsal in the cascading effects and loss of and continuous attempts to reassert control yeah. that the character of Nathan is consistently showing through. I, I, I think it really shows how important the construction of artifice is to reality, like generally the reality is underpinned. So to, to get that certified copy, certified copy makes this point about how there is a copy of David um, and the copy of David that exists not where David is in the academia is not as looked like, not as gazed upon, but it's the same thing. It's the same thing, same artist, but we don't care about it as much. And generally, we don't mean to front here, I was there in Florence recently and I went to see fake David. Fake David is there. And then I went to go see real David in the academia. And it's so much more impactful because of the, the mythos around it, that these things mm. are more important than their actual selves. And that is a thing, again, and art is great when it makes you think about things outside of itself, when it makes you have the wider conversations. And the rehearsal gets to be a funny, clever, quirky TV show that makes you have these conversations about what is real, what is a copy, and what is a copy that's real. So if a copy does that, this does that. And it's great. And, it, and again, the same certified copy changed the way that I thought about that piece of art in the world. Because I was just like, I'm experiencing it now. How does it feel? And it does feel substantively different. And the rehearsal gives that thing of being like, rehearsed reality can prepare you for reality, but is not reality. And again, things can look like blah, smell like blah, feel like blah, but there is something ineffable. And to get back to the philosophical point, Though I think Plato is a bit of an asshat, there is that sense of the platonic form of there is an essence to things. So he takes this idea of like doggy, well, he doesn't take it, but it's, it's often translated through like dogs. So if I was to translate a dog, you'd give me a very slippery definition that I could disprove over time. Yet when you see a dog, you know it's a dog, but it doesn't mean you can define it. That sense there is an essence in things that is beyond that thing. And I, I, I am rambling and it's, it's nonsensical, but I do like that shows like this that are so on the surface, like silly, quirky and nonsensical can get you to these like definitional conversations about what is real, what is not real, what is important. And that's a really special thing, even if it's deep I, enough. Cool. I agree. Um, I love that you bring up how uh, context and the emphasis that we place on uh I, I hate to keep bringing up this word, but authenticity. Yeah, uh, it's the right word to changes. use. How, how we understand um, the world around us. The fake and bar makes that conversation because he made the fake bar. That's what makes it work, of we can construct reality and it's the things around the moment that make the moment. It makes you concentrate on the little things, the background things, the minutia that makes reality real. Yes, and similarly, that focus on detail, I think really causes you to, uh, to probe um, what about everything surrounding it yeah. is real or false and whether or not that has any bearing on its value. Um, I think we really uh, see that in the first episode with Core, but there's a lot of callbacks to this same bar to the same details yes. and how Nathan places himself within it as a kind of point of stability and uh, in contact, even though the bar's actual location, patrons and kind of sense of uh, of stability and um, I don't know uh, uh, we'll say of stability von cut yeah. there um, <laughs> is indicative of uh, no how that same feeling of stability is entirely divorced from its reality 
when Nathan is just sitting in it, drinking a beer poured by actors yes. with actors surrounding him. <laughs> yeah, no, strip, stripping back, like making something so, so real and stripping back to Artifice is, is, is Brechtian because of what? This is a very Brechtian show. It, it makes you confront Artifice and how Artifice creates reality, different the Artifice of reality. It's very, very cool. I mean, to get very much Philosophy 101 here, um, which again, maybe I won't run through Vaughan, we'll see, but um, the philosopher John Searle, who um, I studied university, is very interesting. He had this idea about, about the mind. I think of, of his stuff a lot, and he talks about this like this Chinese room idea, and this goes back to Turing test stuff. So we link that back to Alex Garland from earlier. This idea that you could make a system that in every way echoes something else. So he sets up this idea that you could set up someone behind a door that gets past the Chinese symbol, and I forget the exact, but it goes through loads of processes and it gets past them, past them, and then they, through loads of processes, get the correct um, English alphabet, for a better word, character back. And therefore it looks on the outside that that person is understanding Chinese. They are not. There is step blah, 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 and blah. What that shows us is that the facade of something matters. And that links back to the extended mind thesis, which I'm actually, which I talk about a lot in, in my writing show. I talk about this a lot, this idea that um, writing is thinking, that we, we think outside of ourselves and that when we write, when we create, we are still thinking. That idea that the example given by the philosopher is if somebody has a degenerative disease and they have to take down notes in a notebook, that is their mind because they check it the way your mind works. And Nathan, for you, sorry, not for you, the rehearsal again, gets back this idea of you can construct a reality that does some things and the outcome is the thing that matters. And the outcome Absolutely. shows things. Really, it's not that. It's 100% not that. This is not the bar. This is not the thing, but you can make it real. That person does not speak Chinese, but it works that thing. That is not a mind, but it works that thing. Smells like a, is like a blah, blah, blah. It makes you think about these things. It's cool. I think that a major problem with media and film criticism today as is, a film critic i wait for this good good go it's all is a desire to look for the faults and look for the wires mm. as mm. a form of i think very lazy criticism and looking at what a film does uh right or incorrectly yeah. and i think that the rehearsal also i think fairly eloquently functions as a response to that in that this show is intentionally constructing it so that the wires are yes visible. it shows you every and, wire yeah and uh, going back to uh i'm going to just refer him to the film as uh symbio um the william Greaves film <laughs> so the, to take one. yes um is such a great look at kind of the creation of a film even as like yeah. limited and curated as it is and i cannot hope uh for anything more than that we get a kind of similar look at the construction of that's the what rehearsal. i want season um, two i want season two to be a recreation of this i want it to be just like to go inside to expand i love that we're getting a season two i love that i've noted what it's going to be i want it to take that step further and to be about that yeah that 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 step back the camera behind Which, the camera behind the camera and I think that that is such an interesting reaction because this is a show that is so consciously asking both its creator and the viewer, when is too far? Yes. When, yes. when are the lines between media uh, falsehood and reality crossed in a way that diminishes either one? Yeah. And I don't think that it, 
necessarily finds a definitive answer there, but I don't think that it is necessarily looking to. I think it's much more interested in getting the audience to probe their uh, their response. I think it's a, I think it's Chantal Ackerman. I was reading about recently. It may be somebody else, but that idea of being like that 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 what art should do is it it should it should ask questions more than give answers. And I think that's really really important. I mean, it mm. is important to have concluded thoughts, but the more it can extend past and make you think about things, if it can make you think, that's an important thing. Make you think constructively, that's better because some things don't have answers and it's going to reflect on them. And this exists in a toxic reality world. There's so much crap out there that is so reductively about reality TV. Like I'm in. I made a joke earlier about like how social media is making us less social. That, that is a joke because it's such a reductive take. There is like there is so much absolute shit about the our toxic culture is toxic. Yes, we know, but there is so little constructive communication about what this thing is, why it appeals, what it gets out of this. Mm. And by using the form, by disrupting the form, by lampposting the form, by making by showing the wires, as you say, that like Thunderbirds way of being like everything is on show it actually makes a constructive comment about reality TV because it makes you do the work to make the comment. It makes you reflect on things. It makes you uncomfortable. Like cinema yeah. of discomfort, theater of cruelty, et cetera, et cetera. It goes back to theater theory quite a lot, actually, because it's very theatrical. It is sets, it is Brechtian, it is theater of cruelty, it is blah, blah, blah. That stuff is so important. It's one of the better conversations about reality TV. And it's, it's just so rote. That stuff is so rote all the time. Well, you mentioned uh, kayfabe earlier, and I yes. think that that is such a, a, a great lens um, through which Nathan, uh, Nathan's work largely can be viewed in that it really draws attention to the scripting, the control, yeah. and the collaborative process that our consumption of media um, forces us almost to, to take for yeah. granted. And I think that um, Nathan's work and specifically the rehearsal is focused on peeling back those layers. And I'd be curious to hear about you, Stephen, but ever since I've watched the rehearsal, <laughs> this is a show that has, I believe, fundamentally changed how I engage with media and how I am determining the levels of falsehood and reality uh when it, it i'm hugely draws attention to that and i think that's really important of the i think we take for granted that so much and by making that text that's so so important yeah i mean totally it, it is a relationship to anything it is so of the now i think it will stand up but i think it's most powerfully now because it's so in in, in conversation with thing um to get back to the episodes though there is this Please. so there, there is there is a growth of episodes so we go from pub quiz then we go to um so the second episode is the um the guy of his 100 mile an hour crash in his car right yes uh largely <laughs> it's concerned with uh angela, and, and then it introduces um, angela who her. is just wild who you think must be made up you're like angela cannot be real well Holy crap. as crazy as angela is but as gets realer saying, she, she gets she gets so much more real and you're like oh no you are not a joke you are a person and i like that yeah and, and she is given time to breathe. Yeah. And we, yeah, yeah, yeah. we see how her kind of persona and the audience perception of her is allowed to, to fluctuate. Yeah. And uh, as you're saying, that cannot hold a candle to the comedic appeal and uh, just characterization of um, an, a man who uh, is one of the most absolute 
characters I have witnessed <laughs> in television. It's astonishing. Just the Mr. Neurology wild man is just like... Well, Robin is incredible. And um, <laughs> I think it, it seems almost almost tailor-made uh, yeah. to discuss um, performance and yeah. artificiality in the looking for connection looking for meaning where meaning that. does not exist it's like it, it introduces yes. that stealthily subtly brilliantly that episode is great so from then we get on to i forget episode three because episode four is such an impactful one um i forget the exacts of three do you remember um so three 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 yes so um oh is it is it three or four with the the anti-semite the, that, I want to say that's, that's a thing of four. I thought that was five. I thought that was because there's six episodes, right? Yes. Um, in episode three, while Angela continues to raise her son, Nathan oh. goes to new lengths to help a man prepare for a difficult conversation. No, so, so episode three is the gold digger episode. Yes. Oh god. The, the gold digger episode is a great piece of comic creation of the the literal gag that is made very clear but is never said of someone is said to be a gold digger. So I've made a plot in which someone is digging up literal gold <laughs> to get around which, this. Is just which again wonderful. is also so in conversation with the fact with the question about why people are trying to be on this show. Yes. What oh, attracts yes. them to a a reality TV uh, setting. Vaughn, you're a genius. You're a genius. you're a genius. Because that guy forms that fake creation with that guy's mm. granddad and keeps going on with things. And you know he only keeps saying yes because there's a goddamn camera there filming it. And he's like, Absolutely. will you help me? He's like, yes. And, that, and therefore he gets like a concrete reward of the gold digging out of it. it that episode is so good about showing how cameras change things. That episode, very, very good. Absolutely. Yeah. It really reminded me of a quote from uh, Symbiopsychotoxoplasm. Take one. Take one. Uh, that says, um, A, uh, you're also conscious of the film going yeah. as the film is happening. And so it really just brings to mind the, the conscious level at which these people are performing on television and yeah. what they're doing it for. This is something that we'll talk about in the latter episodes as yeah. well, specifically. So the show's the getting one. better, it's getting better. You've had the numerology thing, now that stuff's continuing. You've got satanic conspiracy nonsense. You've got this like gold digging metaphor that goes out, it's great. And then episode four, which most people say is the best episode, which I know Vaughn is what you said. I wholeheartedly agree with that sentiment. Uh, this is a absolutely stunning hour. It's brilliant. Of it is fantastic. It's utterly fantastic. There's yeah, no other way around it. Um, it is uh, enthralling and just mm -hmm. a cascading uh, just series of events and dominoes that just continues to pull the curtain back again. The way and it's again. in conversation with its own logic of it sets up some rules, which is that we've got this ongoing experiment of raising a child, and it tells you earlier with condensed time down. And therefore it feels like in a like persona the video game way of it's happening in real time mm. and they're decisions of being like, oh, you fucked up. So go back. So there's this lovely idea here of Nathan takes some time out to work on the field of method that underpins the whole show. That's narratively important to the show. Any other TV series, you take time out. And it's this huge thing that's him 
getting in his method to unpick his method to unpick his method that ends up with him becoming himself in a show and then like he attends his own classes when someone plays him and then he takes someone else's role and he ends up living in their house and kind of tricking to do so it's such this brilliant amazing escalation and that would be the end of the episode and then suddenly he goes back home and realizes this whole son role play has been happening in the background and he's accidentally become an absentee father and it does that improv kind of like yes ands it and it makes that the rest of the episode of being like all right it's 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 D style. I mean, I love D and D. Um, I played some D and D with you, Vaughn, as you know. I DM'd you a few times. Um, mm-hmm. And my thing as a DM is it's the fail forward idea, and this is a fail forward moment, and that's where this TV show is amazing. It is amazing that being like, okay, let's roll with this now, then. Let's yeah. reset this as absentee and, father. And, and I brilliant. want to I want to bring in another quote from uh, William Greaves' work, which was, uh, hmm, um from one of his collaborators as uh, Greaves is attempting to kind of, uh, well, as the other people in the film are really questioning what Greaves is doing and whether or not there's any end goal here specifically, one of his collaborators says, uh, I believe that this was planned consciously or unconsciously. I love And I think that that really speaks to the very just kind of, uh, hmm, wait, hold on. I think that this really speaks to the uh, disconnected nature of reality television. And the fact that even with all of the information that the viewer is given about the procession of events, the escalation of events in meaning that this uh, show and especially this episode shows is that you still don't know about whether any of this happens in the same time frame. Yeah. That's it's quite profound, though, isn't it? That we look at, and so what can come off as a happy accident or what can come off as scripted could be entirely reversed in yeah. uh, in how they are actually constructed uh, throughout the show and uh, the change in its meaning for the viewer. There is something beautiful there, though, about reflecting on how just life does keep going, and that is something that is quite terrifying. And like the condensing a child's life down into like a month is a terrifying way of just of just looking about that of being like moments are lost i mean the amount of people you speak to that like successful people at the end of their life they just talk about how they wish they'd spent more time with family there is that idea there of being like we all live on multiple time streams that are experienced at different times like time is exp- time is objective as a concept that is experienced subjectively and is elastic and the way this confronts that is quite heartbreaking now um to get very very real and i'm going to be very careful what i talk about here i don't love this episode as much as some people because of lived experience. So um, as someone that grew up with someone, I don't want to give out too much away because I respect the privacy involved. As someone who who lived in a house with a family member um, that at a young age did turn to drugs and that went to two bad mm-hmm. places, the reductiveness of this narrative and it used as a joke was not great for me in some ways. However, the reason I do kind of like it in the end is when you think about it, this is not Nathan driving the narrative. This is this kid just being like, do you know what would be cool? If this guy got like messed up and drugs. Like this is his idea of like a dropout son through his perspective. And the reason it is reductive and silly and a little bit offensively reductive is because that's the child's eye view of it. And yeah, it, it encourages you to think about it properly. And there are bits of it that I did find uncomfortable because of, of, of background and actual things that I was just like, mm, mm. not sure about that. And then 
making me actually think about the framework around it. I was like, oh, that makes sense, actually. I thought it was really, really clever. And, and getting that like joke at the end of like the slide, absolutely brilliant. But th that stuff is very, very cool about the narratives we push on people and those narratives come from. Yes. Uh, yeah, I, I love that you're talking again about kind of the, uh, the preconceptions that we uh, bring into uh, our relationships, our understanding of, uh, of media and the people around us as we try to navigate our way through the yeah. world. And I think that for me, that is why so many of the uncomfortable aspects of this show still hit as very impactful and meaningful yeah. is that very few of them are played solely as gags and jokes. Yes. I mean, even, yeah. even the, uh, you know, the pre-bought vegetables in uh, episode <laughs> uh, three that are picked um, by Angela out of, the, out of the lawn as if she's actually gardening. It is hysterically funny, but yep. it's an also really interesting insight into the lengths to which uh, this exactly. woman will, like, uh, to make our will engage, to um, will engage with this fantasy, with this reality, with this whole production and show, and what that says about her. In the same way that Nathan in episode four kind of latches on to that idea of like, oh, like the estranged father, I'm going to make you relive that we see him kind of internalize and utilize a lot of that in, in very kind of unique and very personal ways as this episode and show yeah. continues to kind of no longer be about the central kind of premise of the show, but much more about Nathan as a character and the creator outside of that character. And that's well. why I love the next episode the most. For me, that is why it gets better. And I haven't seen Finding mm. Francis, and I, apparently this gets into this apparently a bit more, but the next episode, which is entirely about the fallout of that, I thought was brilliant, of this idea of getting too close to something and then reflecting on how much you're impacted with something is just so, so great. What I thought was especially good about this episode, so the penultimate one, is the way it makes you form allegiances with people like they are characters, mm. and then it reveals things about them as humans. There is a thing that Angela does, which is deeply, deeply anti-Semitic, like hugely so. And a Jewish, I'm going to say character, because there's a character, calls her out about this. You're like, yes, go, go. And then there's this bit at the end of the episode, which remains unchallenged beautifully, of this mm. person reveals herself to be a massive Zionist. And it's so hugely uncomfortable. And it's that way of being like, this is not a character arc. This is a this is a person, a complicated person who a second you're like, yeah, go, you're like, actually, I don't want to have agreed with you earlier. And it again, this show is, you say authenticity, and I agree, but for me, this show is complicity. This show is all about mm. how complicit you feel as a viewer in different things. And the way this episode deals with Nathan playing out childhood, playing out parenthood, not being able to play out parenthood and like the limits of that, wonderful. And that just like reveal of just like the the arc of anti-Semitism to bizarre Zionism. S powerful, reflective, important. Absolutely. I, I think that it really robs the viewer of the easy answers yeah, and very clean they structure that a lot of uh, scripted television, including, you know, the quote-unquote unscripted television, is kind of curated to provide for them. And um, the, the arcs and, uh, as you mentioned, the character arcs 
the narratives that the viewers are expecting are just constantly upended by yeah. Nathan as he continues to kind of pull the rug out from under the viewer there. And all the stuff here with like how the story comes to a, a front with Angela and like fake Angela, I think all that stuff is, is absolutely brilliant. Like absolutely brilliant. And just her performance in this is just is just stunning. Like Angela, fake Angela, and like so, so good. And then we get to the finale, which I just thought was a step beyond again of like the weight just that suddenly it becomes a show about it. You love Kiristami um, a lot. Mm. And um, it makes me think that this show is the Coca trilogy of ep episode one is where is the friend's house? It's that idea of being like, here's a film or show that's definitively, oh my God, I'm going to mention this to Vaughan so much. This is great. I've not thought about this. It's perfect. Here's a show that's definitively about something. There's the story, pub quiz team one. Then the second film is about the fallout of that. It's about what does it mean to make a thing in this area? What's the ethical complications? When reality hits the place in every fiction, what does that mean? And then the third film, which is maybe the best film of the bunch, it becomes the let's take a moment from that film and let's focus on the intimacy of that. I don't know if Nathan Fielder has seen the Coca trilogy. He probably has not. I have no idea. But it's amazing to me that the arc of the series so perfectly matched that arc of being like, here's the thing. Here's the meta thing. And then here's the focus on the meta thing, what the meta thing means. And episode six is that last one of the Coca trilogy for me. It is like the three other trees. It is, it is absolutely stunning of the, we're taking this one dynamic and this dynamic is becoming the show. And the way it is so... Why I love so six is it shows this was harmful, this was bad, mm. but was it entirely? How does this mean? And episode six does something that the rest don't do of it juxtaposes a real actual relationship with the fake relationships of how that mother interfaces with her son and what that means and how it's intuitive and unplanned and unpremeditated. And Nathan Fielder's machinations can never get that. And he knows they can't get that. And that's the arc of the show for me of the fiction can do so much, but fiction is not reality. And reality will always trump and there'll be these things that kind of get that. I just thought it was stunning. I loved it so much. I entirely agree. Um, yeah, I think uh, discussing uh, Karastani in this podcast is well overdue um, because I, I do think that uh, his work is entirely focused on a lot of the same stuff that, uh, yeah. that Nathan's discussing. Um, but as we, as we really brought up earlier, I think that the some of the true genius of, of Nathan's work here is his ability to make this discussion and these questions uh, accessible in a way that draw attention to the viewers' uh, current habits, relationships, and yeah. media consumption. It's, I'm going to say more here. I'm trying to figure out where I want to go in there. <laughs> I mean, you are right. And it's just great. I mean, this is what I jump in and I take over, you know, podcasting hosts, we got this. It's just so great. And I, I love what this, what this episode does is change the age of the child actors, get around that. And again, makes us think about what children are put through in shows when we don't think about that. I think that, again, for me, every episode gets better. And it ends on this thing where the show is not what you thought it was at the beginning. It's more profound. It's cleverer. I've got from the moral problem. You know what? After this conversation, I get it. I'm down. Thank you so much. I'm ready. I get it. The rehearsal. You know what? I'm ready to love it. I love it. I love it. It's great. I, 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 I do think, generally, there is an unethical strand to it that is thorny. But, mm. and this makes me sound like awful, 
there is a sense of you have to to go through that because that thing exists elsewhere and because it exists elsewhere it needs to be confronted is it running the right way no this is a messy imperfect thing and it's about messy imperfect things that doesn't make it peerless perfect art it makes it fascinating art it makes it fast entertainment it makes it a great conversation point i think that's a really good point because i don't think that this show succeeds or has the impact that it does if it doesn't make time and space for these consequences yeah. to rear their heads yeah and totally. the the like you're saying that the arc of the show is i think nathan's character realizing the limits yeah. of uh of the, field the of show's central premise and approaching as the we've world. Been proven, we've had a lovely conversation about the rehearsal. And I feel like the only thing is I feel I've used like I feel like I don't, I don't need to talk about it, Mel. I feel I've got it through of that sense of when you do fake, you can't fake things. You you, you can't like mm-hmm. reality is reality. And that is that is the detritus there. You've gone through the thing, you can't go through it again. Like you live through things once and you can make the things around it, but reality is reality. Oh. Absolutely. Yeah. We're gonna have we're gonna um, have to do some emails in a second. We're gonna have to. We're gonna have to break into it. I'm so sorry because we mm. we are reaching the end of the segment and we've got one segment left. So you got an email right. for so the emails we have. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So I've got uh, two the emails about the rehearsal. Okay. We have our first email from Luke who says, "Hello, Geek One and Geek Two. Not too much to say about the rehearsal apart from the fact that it is great." One plays along with this idea of rehearsals, but the show quickly falls into this beautiful rabbit hole of perfect insanity. Yeah. Episode four is probably the best example of this with Nathan trying to actually become another person. The shot of him standing in that man's bedroom is blood curve. Yeah, it is. That that is that one where you're like, has this gone too far? This is the problem. And And it holds it as aware of that is why it is good. That's one of many. Um, I'd say that he continues a, a perfect television show from today's audience that is bound to end up doing something insane. And with that, I must head off to Door City. But <laughs> Good joke. can we keep you my shirts and shoes on? <laughs> Thank you, Luke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Luke. A- yeah agreement, agreement, agreement. Right what else do we have? Um, all right. Uh, okay. Our second email is from Lorcan, who says, Hi. I was recommended the Letterbox 250 video on the Jack Davenport YouTube channel. That's wild to me that we've actually had someone just find us in the wild. Hello. Thank you for finding us through algorithms. Oh my gosh. Hearing from our friends. (laughs) Thank you for listening. Appreciate it. Even if you didn't like it. Thank you very much. Please join um, the Twin Geeks uh, Discord if you have not yet. God, marketing. (laughs) Little plug. Um, What a challenge that list represents. I suppose you watch The Man Who Sleeps on YouTube. Um, to me, that kind of kills the excitement. I heard of that film when I was watching and collecting classic French cinema titles on DVD. I've always been of a mind to wait to see something in a better way than just to watch it on YouTube in order to have seen it. Can you can, all relate to that line of thinking? Can I deal with that question now? Because I, I don't want to, so uh, this is, it's okay. I, I'll be generous first. To the extent I get it. So recently I watched the film Shiver, which is phenomenal. And I, I, I started mm. watching it just like, I, I watch a lot of stuff on tablets and laptops because it's easier. And I think the watching the film is more important than how you watch it. Ultimately, the culture is what matters. I, I believe that. I'm not expecting everyone else to believe that. That's what I think. However, um, my good friend Ben said, no, seriously, watch it properly. Like, and I got home, I have a sound system, etc. I put it on. That was the way to watch it. That was important. That's that experiential work. However, 
I think we need to be careful when we stray into gatekeeping. And I think it's really important that things are watched as opposed to the commerce around them. It being this on DVD ultimately means nothing by collection status. Mm. I think it's important for people that make things um, get the credit for their work, financial recompense in the world that we live in. However, ultimately, yes, so that's some label, some rights manufacturer thing. There is very little concrete difference between watching it on YouTube and watching it on a DVD, apart from some element of prestige. And it's how you feel about it. If you want to watch something that way, I think that's great. If you like the element of having a physical thing, that's brilliant. However, I think what's far more important is we're having the access to art, that art should be more democratically open. I think it's brilliant that a film like this, I mean, Recently, Mark Kermode, the film critic, talked about this movie called The Mad Monkey, which I had not really heard about at all. Um, it sounded absolutely bizarre and wonderful. And he said, I don't know how you can find it. Don't know how you can find it, but it's brilliant. And then someone emailed into his podcast next week and said, it's just on YouTube. That's amazing to me. I did this video Nazis podcast for a long time, and it fascinated me. There are these films that were banned, that were illegal to have in your home, that these things are so dangerous. And now they're on goddamn YouTube, and you can just watch them. This... YouTube has problems, but the way it makes art more democratic in this way, I think is very, very important. I love The Man Who Sleeps on YouTube. I love that it can be watched. It being watched is ultimately more important than the way that you watch it. You hold the way you watch it for yourself, and that is great. I do relate to that. I think there is something sacrosanct about our experience of things. You get a first time once. However, repeat this again, the watching of the thing, the consuming of the thing is the important thing. I mean, I have watched brilliant films in the way I have to because they're there. When flying back from Rome, I had some time in the airport. I watched, this is going to sound sacrilegious to some people, I watched a bit of Je Tu Il El, the Shadow of Ackerman movie, on my phone because it was there. Still a beautiful movie, still wonderful, up in my face, whatever. Watching is important. So apologies, Lorcan, but that is my belief on that. Yeah, um, I, I like that, Stephen, and I proudly agree with you there. Uh, I am kind of of, uh, of two minds here. Um, I agree that uh, by all means, we watch a lot of niche, largely underseen movies yes. uh, that won't find a big audience. Um, some of them were not really made for a large audience and others have simply just been lost to time, to history, yeah. to circumstance, to culture. And so I, I agree that uh, the main point of importance there is whether or not one can see it. Uh, you can, you know, get an experience, emotions, and understandings from these films that you wouldn't otherwise have, uh, regardless of how you come to find that. Uh, I I can see some credence uh, to what you're saying there, Lorcan. With I know I get it. I totally get cheapening it. of it, like uh, you know, the idea that you are not getting uh, the full benefits in breadth of, uh, of experience in filmmaking if you are simply watching it in you know like a minimized YouTube thumbnail you know if it's a great watch, version uh, it's, it's it is a good upload of that film onto you it's it's like mm. it's always I just I get very nervous of people like canonicizing their view and just like I'm not saying this is at all ableist, but that, that like I've had as an English teacher, I've conversations with people about being like people looking down on audiobooks, for example. Some mm. people have to interact with certain forms in that way, Absolutely. and that's how they do it, and that's how it matters. And do what you want about how you consume work. Work, and I know that I'm gesturing into this, but I'm pushing the point here. Just do not canonicize your way of viewing it on onto others. 
it's great that you have a sacrosanct view. That's fantastic. That's great. That's how you should experience it. And I get that's all that you're saying. I just think for the wider audience, I think there is a legitimacy to different people have different ways of accessing things. And for sure. that is hugely important and can be for all kinds of reasons. And some people cannot collect obscure French DVDs and they should not be locked off from cinema. Cinema should not be hidden behind capital. It should not be hidden. It has to be because of goddamn capitalism. But like art should not be monetized away. It should not. And YouTube is not an entirely free platform because you're selling yourself. I get that. But there's that sense of access is great. Access is important. Mm -hmm. And democratize that are brilliant. I absolutely agree. Yeah, I think that uh, it, I do agree that for, you know, quibbles about how, oh, this might not be the perfect way to view this film and really, uh, you know, really take in the full impact, the ability to take any of that impact in and uh, to be able to be a part of that uh, conversation and experience that comes yeah. with watching cinema is the great equalizer and what is of the most importance there. Uh, so moving on to the rest of uh, Lorcan's email here. Thank you, Lorcan, sorry. Um, no, 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 they've, they've got a lot going on. Uh, they say that this brings me to the happening. Um, I think that hey. you saw cinematic uh, reverse shorts <laughs> sorry. on your last podcast. I, I think didn't it's mean an to. example of perfect directing. You could say it's a bit clinical, that is, it's a demonstration of good directing as an end in itself, rather than uh, in service of something more profound, but still. I, really I, 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 I actually, I agree with you completely that, Lorcan, and maybe I did, I did not make my point as much as I could have done. So yeah, spot on, and you should clarify on that. I do think it's beautifully directed. I think it's a very, very well-directed, well-constructed film. I think that the thing that's being underpinned by that direction could be better in aspects to that last episode, um, last episode that I was on. But you're right, it is a hugely complicated directed. It, it is, again, maybe a bit more clinical for some of my take. I think that, mm. that sometimes direction can go beyond, again, I say canonical ideas of what craft is. There's a, a view of what a film should be. We watch, Vaughn, I and friends watch a lot now more amateur and weird film we did before of these Moton films, etc. They are not ticking all the artistic boxes direction can be more than fitting to what we expect a film to look like um and you're right there are perfect perfected elements about the film but that is a way of viewing what direction should be and ultimately i feel there are issues with the film the story it tells and how it tells it and that is all part of the direction as well but you're right on a visual level and on an editing level it's a very 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 opposite film excellent film and Stephen, to come back to uh the previous topic um Lurkin finishes that note about the happening with saying, but maybe I appreciate its immersive quality because I was able to see it at the cinema God damn it. <laughs> on a Monday. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, maybe, totally. I mean, how we watch a film is, is going to change that, but that can be throughout the total things. It can be the point of your life you watch that film, be what you're thinking about at the time. I have had immersive experiences watching films outside of cinema better than in. I mean, mm. it's, it's sometimes the right film finds you at the right time. And I think saying the exact experience is why it is the case maybe the case um i don't know i don't know i mean maybe i like that film what cinema i don't know i watched it on movie um good transfer enjoyed it we'll see um okay then uh um lurkin does bring up one more thing um saying and then shortlands berlin syndrome i haven't seen it yeah screenwriter is responsible for nitrim to me yeah uh, pretty clearly the most interesting cinema release of the high summer months. I, I watched it. I 
I was leaked this email and I watched Netrum. I disagree. Mm. I, I, yeah, um, I have a review on letterbox.com that you can read. Um, Stephen Edge, Stephen Gillespie is me there. Um, I think if you think Nitchum is brilliant, I'm this is such a wanky thing we'd say. Watch a different movie. <laughs> I mean, I know this is very, very irritating, and I know you probably <laughs> never listen again, and I apologize. But Michael Haneke's, um, I think it's called 71 Fragments of a Chronology of Chance, mm. is a brilliant film and is what I wish Nitrum was. I think Nitrum, again, very directed. I think it's very interesting. I have issues of Nitrum about what it is and how it's telling its story. I think there are bits in Nitrum that are brilliant. I think overall it left me cold and I don't know if it needs to be. Um, and Cazelle, I think, is a promising visual filmmaker that has some interesting films out there. I, I think a lot about Nitrum. I think if you want to see what I say more about it, then, then check out my review where I've kind of like expanded those thoughts. Um, I still think it plays into our want to look for singular narratives when the truth is much wider. And I think, though it does a great job of taking the story away from canonizing a shooter, um, and I love that unlike like Elephant, for example, it does not show the shooting, um, I still think it feeds into our fascination of singular narratives, whereas I think Chronology of Chance shows that we will never piece the picture together and there is something societally wrong and there is, and it, this is the glaciation trilogy of, of Haneke, and that's why that film is so brilliant, of it makes us want to make sense of this, and we can't. As opposed to Nitram takes the thing and goes, let me show you the things that led up to this. And for me, I don't want that. I don't want to see that. I think the gun show, so the gun shop scene in that film is very, very good, because it shows how things can play out in the simplicity there. That's important filmmaking. Apart from that, I'm not quite sure why the film exists, though I think it is good all the way through. I think it's a good film. I do not think anywhere nearly as highly of it as you do the rest of it. Well, I think that that is uh, also kind of reflective of what you've said is your stance on what, what you're interested in filmmaking was, yeah. and that you're interested in the consequences and what yeah. comes after uh, you know, these very pivotal and large events. And I think that Nitrim is less focused on that. So, I mean, just by virtue of how the film is constructed, it, it won't be the most satisfying film for someone like you, Stephen. Um, I, that's I very, very agree, true. It's a very, very good uh, I do agree for you, uh, with you for the most part in that I, I think it's a well-constructed film. Uh, I think that it is largely refreshing in the way that it tackles this issue. Yes, I agree. And that it succeeds in, uh, in being far less focused on the, uh, the shooter that we normally uh, equate and what is such a big problem with uh, the US's response to uh, mass shootings and gun Yeah, violence. and this being so Australian, it, but still it's very much in conversation with Australia. that. Like it's, it's, yes, it's set I, in the past, but it, it wants to, it knows that Australia stepped in. I actually think the text at the end of the film legitimizes the film because mm. it talks about how we did this, yet this has not solved something. And therefore makes you go like, what the hell? I think there's a powerful yeah. call to, to arms at that film. Call to, uh, call to arms is the wrong phrase, Jesus Christ. Call to action <laughs> at, the, at the end of that film. I'm so glad that I watched it. So thank you for making, for, for this email made me watch it. So thank mm. you for that. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, it does feel very, uh, of, of the moment. Tragically, in, yes. Tragically, it feels of the moment in a way that, that makes it feel necessary, uh, even if the film is yeah. not necessarily one that I love. It does feel like a capital I important film uh, yeah. that I would still still recommend people to watch if this is uh, 
an issue and a history that they are concerned with and interested it's in. a really good version of a film that i don't want like it, mm. it, it, I like it, that. it, it is is a film i'm not interested in but it's a very good one of those um thank you for your email thank you very much for yeah. for contacting and apologies for enraging you with my opinions believe me you're not the only one <laughs> Um, okay, and then we're pausing here. I was not able to get the final email to load. For so our last email was from Calvin. Um, Name Builders Reality TV comes with a difference. It's a verse what television meant to do as decided largely by networks making the same shows as small variations. My favorite subversive shows are Twin Peaks. I agree with you. Dismantling mm. soap opera detective story cut with more classic filmmaking methods and Americana and a Larry Sanders show, which I've not watched. Um, and because of the meta show, uh, about nothing that Seinfeld, uh, nothing like Seinfeld that takes on the awkward and around to talk shows. What are your favorite subversions of entertainment and formats? Great question. Um, I think okay. this podcast right now, I think this thing that we're doing right now, there you go, bam, done it. I you like know what? It. I'm going to take the cop out answer this. Uh, we'll answer this properly. <laughs> we'll answer this properly in the actual podcast because <laughs> we're running out of time. Fair enough. Um, um, yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure quite what what Vaughn would list as his favorite uh, deconstructions <laughs> of, uh, of format and media. Um, um, he loves um, that. He loves. He loves it. Bam. Um, the Coca trilogy. How it deconstructs things. We've talked about this in nausea. Oh, sure. It's a. It's a really good question. Um, Starship Troopers, to an extent, of taking mm. like a text that's definitively about something and then being fundamentally not about that thing. There are loads yeah. of things that, that deconstruct as they, I, I like things that deconstruct as they construct. Um, I've watched stuff recently that does that. Um, in fact, The Land Goodbye does that to an extent. So there mm. you go. We construct to deconstruct. Right. Um, great question. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, appreciate it. And Mel wants to know how Vaughn picks um, his, his, his movies for the recommendations, which I guess we'll just say, Vaughn, recommend a movie to show. What's your recommendation at the end of this podcast? Yeah, so the movie that I've picked uh, to recommend this uh, podcast is a really interesting one. Um, it's called Dead Time. Uh, it's by, and I will probably butcher this director's name, uh, Joko Anwar from Indonesia. And it is a quasi-noir, almost supernatural kind of uh, cool. take on the genre that uh, I found really refreshing and, uh, and really fascinating. Um, it is uh, kind of taking place in a kind of unnamed city and unnamed time uh, where we are kind of seeing the degeneration of society and uh, a lot of the lawlessness and criminality that comes with that. But beyond that, how uh, people's sense of self and kind of reaction to that uh, is created and entailed. And um, it's a very fun film, um, very much kind of in the uh, homage style to a lot of other uh, noir films in a way that I think is largely really successful. Um, I'm not sure that it all quite comes together in the mm, end, but it was a lot of fun, really enjoyable. Um, that's a great recommendation. I'm going to recommend um, a short film called May 15th, um, which was just recently refound. This is a film from 1969. Um, and it's from director Claire Denis. Yes, one Ooh. of the greatest filmmakers of all time. This is her graduation, her thesis film um, that's been wow. unearthed um, that I found just a Google Drive link just came out and be like, you can watch this thing now. It's 29 minutes long. It's Groundhog Day. It's amazing. Nice is nine. She made this movie about someone that lives through the 15th of May and they wake up the next day is the 15th of May again. And they do of that. It, it, 
years Fresh before, concept. honestly. Fantastic. It's so cool. But it has different priorities to Groundhog Day. It, Groundhog Day is about like the repetitions and like replaying in that rehearsal-like way, actually. Of mm. the, how can we manufacture the moments to make it perfect? That's the crux of the center of Groundhog Day of wanting to curate reality, which is obviously seen as an impulse line of art. This film is not about that at all. Um, which is interesting because the, the Groundhog Days alike are all about that. Um, this is a, a a flawed and haphazard production, though it is very, very endearing. It ends in like a three minute just info drop that explains the whole thing, because it just shows that we had an idea much larger than the best than the movies do. It, totally. I mean, it, it, it's bad. Um, the uh, thing is itself is very, very good. Um, that bit is, is bad. And it's very much because we're like, well, I have an idea and I could only make a short. It's my thesis film. So here's what it all meant. Um, Claire Denis, I love as a filmmaker. And she's at her best when she is suggesting and delving ambiguity. I like that you can see the beginning of her ideas in here. The opening credits are cut to footage of dolls being put together and it reminds me of how her films do with bodies and they deal with like parts of bodies being abstracted through camera lenses and that's there from the very beginning there's a bit of like a man talking and being an asshole she is so aware of the masculine dominance of a space and the fragility that comes with that all those all those impulses are there to begin with she has not found her craft of how to just expand out and be ambiguous yet um because she's limited by form but it's such a great show of being like a filmmaker doing something so so early i love claire Denis so much great bit of film history really worth checking out it's fun it's silly at the end but it is endearingly silly and the idea it puts out there is fun which is like and if i was to do a feature film um it would be about this bam the end um which is interesting actually because i watched um joanna hogg's graduation film recently that i also caprice which i also really liked um and is much more expressionist and wild and stranger than her later films which are quite mm. social realist um I really recommend going back and looking at early first films of filmmakers. They're so instructive of their later career and often diverge in ways that make you realize why they didn't do that or why you wish that again. So I guess both Caprice and May 15th are my recommendations. There you go. So Vaughan, um, if you want to follow you, where, they can, where can they find you? Uh, so they can follow, follow and find me uh, at a couple other places. Um, yeah. I am a mod on the uh, Discord for the Twin Geeks. <laughs> you, you don't usually and... plug, but yes. Oh, do we not normally plug that? <laughs> we don't normally plug you being a mod, no. I understand. <laughs> it's important for my own validation here, I cool. think. Cool. Yeah, the Discord, come find us. Um, you go to us.com, the community tab is there. Um, you're on Twitter as Zero Zebra X and then a Z, confusingly. You're on Letterboxd is the same, obviously, definitely Zero Zebra on Letterboxd. Zero Zebra on Letterboxd. I think you find Vaughn. Vaughn is Zero Zebra on Letterboxd. That's X E R O Z E B R A. Zero Zebra, Zero Zebra on Letterboxd. There you go. Um, if you wanted to find your cousin, bizarrely, <laughs> <laughs> where would they find him if you are he looking seems great. To find he seems great vaughn's cousin who i mean i i haven't met personally but i would imagine <laughs> vaughn, we don't met your cousin awesome. strange continue um <laughs> you can uh you can find his cousin lucas on uh letterboxd as uh under the name control group do or i actually you follow you find him, <laughs> or you can find him on twitter under the username atreides failson Fantastic. I'm now seeing if I follow you. I have no idea if I do or not. Is this you? 
Oh, you don't even follow me, so I don't even feel guilty. Oh my gosh, <laughs> ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's you. There you go. I am following you now. Done. Oh, inherent Vice, top four, fantastic, oh, nice. Dude, it's it's a good one. Yeah, perfect. Movie absolutely rules. Perfect, yeah, uh, yeah um, I'm Stephen. Hi, um, follow me on Letterboxd, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And what do we say at the end of every show? Hmm. It's good because Vaughn's also bad at this. <laughs> Repeat what after do me. you say at the end of Until next show, time, I'm thinking of ending this podcast. So, Bam, <laughs> what are you thinking of? Ending this podcast. But it's the whole thing because it's a joke. I'm thinking, ah, of, yeah. I'm thinking of ending this podcast. <laughs> I think, last run, go. I'm thinking of ending this podcast. There you go. Or I'm thinking of thinking of ending this podcast. Nailed it. Love it. Love it.